I'm Commander Shepard, and Normandy FM is my favorite show on the Citadel. Normandy FM. 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 Hello everyone, this is it. This is actually it. We we did a big finale thing for Mass Effect 3 uh, because we did not know if we would be getting to this point, but now we are here and we get to finally send off Mass Effect. This is it, Kenneth. This is it. Yep. Pour one out. But, like it it's it's kind of bizarre to think that we started this podcast, Normandy FM, about a year ago. I, I think mm-hmm. I think the way it would have timed out originally is that we would have done uh because you came up with the idea for Normandy FM on N seven day. And mm-hmm. we would have recorded the first episode probably a week later or so, maybe a little bit later Mm -hmm. but we've been going for just about a year at this point and Mm -hmm. a whole bunch has changed since then (laughs) we've our lives are completely different (laughs) yeah i mean we've both uh become gainfully employed went from the uh the freelance life to the uh to the not freelance life anymore uh which is great and i graduated college you graduated college, and I had a cat when I started this, so <laughs> I did not gain a cat, but my cat perhaps got more chaotic in that time. Uh, it's been it's been incredible. I'm, I'm Eric Van Allen. Uh, my co-host, Kenneth Shepard, is here, and uh, we're going to wrap up Mass Effect Andromeda this week here on Normandy FM, uh, retrospective about all things Mass Effect for one more episode. Uh, before we get to that, we're just going to do some, uh, let's call it housekeeping, I guess. If you are a patron, you saw our post already on the Patreon, but for those of you who are listeners, uh, but do not donate to the Patreon, uh, once again, that is patreon.com slash normdfm if you would like to become a donor, help us keep the lights on, pay for that SoundCloud premium membership and all that, uh, always happy to have you there. Uh, but we're just happy to have you all as listeners, so it's not a huge deal if not. But uh, we put the announcement up, but essentially we, we said this a while back that we hit our goal, uh, which is... I forgot what the exact dollar count was, Ken, uh, per month to, to do Dragon 75. Age. 75? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, we're past that. Uh, so we passed that count to do our Dragon Age playthrough. Uh it looks like we're not going to change the name of the podcast for Dragon Age, mostly because that would probably be a lot of headache that we don't want to go through. Uh, and I don't know about you, Ken, but I've become a little attached to the name Normandy FM. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. exactly want to ditch it in favor of something else. Plus, we lose like that brand recognition. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. 
you know, it's so maybe you know we can call it like Normandy FM, uh, Thetis Radio or something like that, or just come up with some like cheesy tagline that we can have. But uh, for for all intents and purposes, we will still be Normandy FM. But uh, that Dragon Age playthrough will not start next week because. Well, to be frank, half of it is that uh, Ken and I both work in the games industry. We both are uh, games writers, games journalists, if you will. Uh, and we uh, we are in the thick of it right now. This is about the time of year where we are the busiest. And especially these last couple weeks, I think we've both felt it. That it's just been hard to try and fit in. The playtime, especially for a game that's as large as as Andromeda is, uh, and, and like keep up with everything while we have all this other stuff going on. Uh, also, uh, just a general break feels good. Uh, that way we can start the new year on a high note. And also, Dragon Age Origins has a lot going on in that first section. Uh, the titular Origins are pretty dense and i will say right now that i'm not a hundred percent certain the type of character that i will be playing in origins or any of the other dragon age games but definitely origins because that game has so many different systems compared to two and th- almost a two and three. Oh, it is two and three since they're called the next one dragon age four two and three <laughs> uh so the plan is that january 15th uh 2020 will be our first episode back for Normandy FM uh, Thetis Radio. See, I'm going to say it's just going to stick. Except it's not. That's Radio Free Thetis? That's better. I like that one more. That feels more natural. I don't know. We're, well, we're workshopping this Well, our current doesn't have the subtitles, so... It does we, not. It, 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 could be, it could be changed at any moment. Yeah, it could change at any moment, even while we're, we're discussing it right here. We're just kind of workshopping a little bit. Um... But the other important thing to note is that while we will be going on pause, we will not be drawing from the Patreon for either the month of December, because obviously we won't be uh, broadcasting in December, and we won't be drawing from the month of January either, because the way it kind of works out is that we'll be picking up about halfway through January, whereas with Mass Effect Andromeda, we're kind of cutting off halfway through November, so... We're just going to not draw from January. That kind of makes things even-ish. We feel like that's a good compromise there as far as where content is. And and Ken and I have talked a little bit about doing some content in the interim because we are nothing if not uh, content-addled fiends. So (laughs) we, we cannot help ourselves. So there might be one or two things you see going up over the break. Uh, and also, like, we'll have other things going on, like Ken and I also always write about Bioware all the time in our respective gigs, and we always try to retweet that stuff out from the Normandy FM account. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that I will have at least one PAX panel in the future that will be Bioware-related, and hopefully more if some other plans go through. And in the meantime, like, just follow twitter.com slash show. And you'll be able to keep up with all the updates there as we kind of go into this brief lull uh, as we transition from Mass Effect into Dragon Age. But today we are talking all things 
Andromeda. We're putting the cap on Andromeda. And so real quick, I, I want to lay out what that is before we get into it. Because, Ken, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking about a lot of feelings here. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the main the main beats that we're going to be hitting are Movie Night, which is kind of the Citadel DLC of Andromeda. It's the very like crew getting together, having a good time sort of mission. Uh, we also have the Journey to Meridian which is the first Meridian mission. And then the, I forgot what the second part is called. I think it's Meridian. The way home. A way home. That's what it is. I kept wanting to call it far from home. I was like, that's not right. <laughs> that's the that's Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Meridian away home, which is the second uh, Meridian related mission, which takes place right after that first Meridian mission. Uh, very similar to Mass Effect 3, the way that they have kind of two end game missions. Although you're, somewhat able to free roam in between them uh but we just decided to group them together so we'll have those three we'll also be talking uh a little bit about our respective love interests i know that there is still some unresolved stuff with gil that we need to talk about uh including one Mm. very large choice that we uh will talk about i am sure (laughs) Mm. (laughs) that that ken Mm. just has uh reams of notes prepared for (laughs) and uh and we got to talk about PB romance too, because uh, I have now seen all of that, and that's going to be interesting to talk about. So, and there's also Rider oh. Family Secrets and Rider Family Secrets. Of course, I almost forgot. Uh, the thing that you told me would just completely change my feelings on Andromeda. I feel like that was brought up at least once when you were originally trying to convince me to finish Andromeda before we even started this podcast. You're like, you gotta play Rider Family Secrets. I was like, mm. no. And now that I've played it, Ken, full of shit, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, mm, let's, how about we start with Rider Family Secrets? I feel like that's the easiest one to start with. Uh, we, yeah, the because- that works. Movie night's a little bit lighter. Uh, yeah. I would rather have that to to bookend or or sit in between some things. Whereas Ryder is kind of not as interconnected with all the other major things. Uh, so Ryder Family Secrets is it is one of the larger side missions in the game. But I almost feel like a large reason why I do not like it is that I feel the game does not a disservice by hiding it behind a collectible. Like, mm-hmm. the idea that... Initially, it sounds really good, where it's like, oh, you know, you're going to go to all these places, and Alec wanted you to become a Pathfinder, and so then you would discover all the, the family secrets, because that's literally what the, the whole thing is about, is you're unlocking memories that have been locked away in Sam's... Uh, subconsciousness i guess would be the best way to call it like locked away in some encrypted memory banks and stuff that you then experience as the younger writer and i just like even keeping that like principle to it i don't understand like why it wasn't like tied to story progress or something like that like it right i mean not to like not to oversell it but this is probably the most important mission in this game like maybe to like in terms of, like, its ramifications for the lore of the Mass Effect universe. I can't believe and, it's not a main story mission. It's literally, yeah, like, and, just like, bonkers to me that's not. There are so many people that I've spoken to, like, over the past, like, two years of this game being out that never saw the end of this. They don't know what happens at the end of this mission. And, it like, 
completely changes your view of why anything in this game really took place. And I just, I don't know whose choice it was to put it, like, to structure it the way they did, but, like, it's a major failing of, like, the open-world bullshit of this game that, like, it wasn't prioritized in the way that it should have been. Here's the thing that gets me about it, because the idea of what you're doing is that you are finding all these spots that are big landmarks or, like, noticeable things on all these planets. How would Alec have known where any of these are or what they looked like? It it makes no, it makes no fucking sense. Like, it just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So just the, we're clear up front, makes no sense. Okay, we're there already. Now, once we've gone through all the open world bullshit that we have to get through, we get to what is actually kind of, because even while you're building up to that, you're unlocking these memories, but I feel like until you don't, until you've acquired all the nodes and you've gotten to like those last few memories that's when you start to get the actual meat of what's going on because most of this other stuff you could kind of learn from just reading the uh i always want to call them the whatever kojima calls them in death stranding but they're not they're the um uh the codex codex Mm. is that yeah uh yeah yeah so i feel like you could get a lot of that from there you you get an idea of who Alec was as a person, who, how, like, the development of Sam, like, the, the big plot point that you get from it is that uh, their mother was dying, the the writer mother was dying from a disease that did not have a cure, and uh, Alec, at the same time, was developing Sam, which was basically AI that he wanted to use to enhance uh, soldiers. And, well, did it start out with military applications, or was it just, I, like... It was... It was mainly for Ellen Ryder. Like, that was... Well, least... yeah, but he pitches it to the Alliance military at some right. point. Because that's right. what gets him kicked out as an N7. That's when you learn right. that he was kicked out as an N7. Because I don't think you learn that while he's alive. Or at least it's not told to you, the player, while he's alive. Um, and that's kind of... The idea is that you learn a lot about your dad. Uh, but I have trouble in general with the dad stuff in this game because i feel like we don't have enough time with him to develop any level of attachment to his character he kind of feels like a character we're told we should care about but it's not necessarily as effective as say uh your sibling in dragon age 2 because that's a relationship that gets built up over time whereas here it's not mm. like it's not like the hawk family where you start the game yeah. with them and you like go on a journey and they are very involved in all the different things that happen uh you don't have that time with alec and you really don't have that time with your sibling either which is kind of maybe a larger issue i'm going to have throughout this whole end game <laughs> sequence is that yeah well i i feel they could have done a better job of that for me personally, like I had, like even going back to like when we arrived in Habitat Seven, I was always establishing that my writer and Alec weren't necessarily close. So there, for me, there was it was less about like the emotional intrigue of like wanting to understand this character more. It was more like you know, like they didn't know each other very well, like despite the fact that they were family. So it's like why, like what was this man's motivation to literally take us all through dark space to a different galaxy? And so, from, like, from that point, it's very intriguing to me. Not necessarily for 
the emotional attachment I have to Alec Ryder as a character, just more about like what it meant for my version of Ryder to learn these things. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, I mean, they do they do gradually establish some sort of like sense of what the Ryder family is like because you get all these scenes with them together. It is kind of surreal to see like your own character model, but like in the. Yeah. In, in first person from another character's perspective like in that third person view uh yeah. and and that's kind of effective because you just start to get a sense of that family that you've not seen up to this point but it feels very rushed especially when you're like when you're playing it like we are which is how i imagine most people would play this sort of thing is get all the collectibles and then watch all the videos uh feels very hurried along uh and throughout the whole time you're getting these audio logs they're giving you the background on how Alec was researching AI and how he was coping with all this. We get some cameos from like, there's a Corian talking about the Geth and there's uh, the shadow broker who is the Yogg cause, cause uh, Liara was not in power at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, but we do hear some Liara later on. Do not worry. <laughs> um, and our, we get, kind of the first hint about the other aspect of what this whole mission is going to be about when we get to the memory where Alec first gets recruited for the Andromeda initiative by the mysterious benefactor. And Mm. the first time we see the benefactor and it starts swapping character models, I thought it was just a straight up glitch. (laughs) Like (laughs) I was sitting there and I was like, Oh man, this game's real fucked. (laughs) Um, yeah, so like for for, for context, like for context, everybody, like when Alec is talking to this person called the benefactor, the video on like their the video call, it just constantly is changing faces, so you never see what the person actually looks like. It so, did maybe highlight to me how like cookie cutter a lot of different faces are in Andromeda compared to other Mass Effect games because I was like. Oh hey, that's the Asari journalist. No wait, no, that's not. That's just a different Asari that just looks extremely similar. Oh wait, a lot of them look extremely similar in this game. <laughs> like it, that was maybe the point where I was like, oh man, I suddenly miss how distinct different characters looked in in main Mass Effect. Um, I felt like there was a lot more done to to signify who was who, and we've talked about that issue with the Angara, but just in general with like. The, especially I found it with the Turian and the Asari where they all looked very samey throughout the game. It was hard for me to tell who Sid was pretty frequently because if Vetra was not standing next to Sid, I wouldn't have known who Sid was. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I don't know. That's a minor thing. I promise, I promise I'm not wholly negative on this endgame. I promise you that. <laughs> I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer the whole time. Uh, Mr. 12 Pages of Notes Kenneth Shepard <laughs> I'm just very fucking thorough it's, uh, they know it by now yeah y'all know it by now uh, so we learned that there is a benefactor who has been funding this whole operation that uh, Jen Garson Gian or Jen I always said Gian Gian, Gian Garson yeah uh, Gian uh, Gian Garson uh, who was kind of the visionary, the I, I, I'm sorry, Ken, the Elon Musk of of the Andromeda Stop it. initiative. Don't! How dare you? 
Uh, Gian Garson did not go down for this disrespect. But much like Elon Musk, Gian Garson was a mostly ineffective face. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. Gian Garson's better than that. Uh, she uh, was kind of the visionary of the initiative but we get a sense that there was a benefactor who was funding the whole thing behind the scenes and that there was maybe a reason that they wanted to get out to Andromeda that mm. we have not learned about yet. And that's when we hit a wall with the encrypted logs. Uh, we need one final thing to kind of push through here. Well, we do, Wait. Well, we do also, because like, we investigate Gene Garson's death. Well, yeah, no, I was is. getting there. I was getting there. Don't worry. I was getting there. Okay. <laughs> uh so as we start moving on we're like okay we need to we need to figure out what's going on with this benefactor we need some more info here uh so we go and ask tan and of course tan has no idea what's going on well why would tan ever have any idea what was going on Mm -hmm. but we do find out that oh you know maybe Garson didn't die during the incident with the Scourge. Maybe Garson was just said to have died during the incident with the Scourge. And Tan has a very scummy line about, like, don't make any waves about this. We don't need more noise. Mm. And I'm like, oh, buddy. Oh. Mm. I'm going to send you off to Kadara. <laughs> just ship <laughs> you out tomorrow. Um, and we go and investigate. And here's the part where I start going why was this not in the main story? Like, why is this hidden behind so many, like, not just the collectathon, but going through all these audio logs as well, because we do this really cool Batman style thing of recreating the crime scene and finding that somehow from the way that this apartment, which was disheveled and then never set right again, even though there's only like six apartments on Andromeda, uh, that there was, there was a murder like there was an actual murder that likely took place and then we find a secret room that garson had been hiding out in because she knew that she was being hunted uh and clearly it was effective but we use a keyword which apparently her and and alec Ryder and her were using as their special access code we learned about fulcrum so we talked to a vi who gives us the lowdown that there is a benefactor who she was super suspicious of and something was not like something was really under the table about all this. And again, we get hints about it being something to do with the Milky way and then wanting to get out. And we go and we use our, uh, we use our tools to unlock what that is. So to, to set the scene okay so the one memory we have skipped over is of ellen uh mama rider passing away uh we see kind of what we are told are the final hours of ellen rider's life the scene that we unlock is a final communication with i forget his name is garris's father it's like corvidus vicarian or, or something like that um, i i knew it just 40 seconds ago and then you I asked know, right? I have to check it's it starts with a c i'm like 90 percent. it's like corvidus that's my bet corvidus castus cassidus castus oh castus 
that's weird. Castus is better. Uh, Castus Vicarian. Where did I get Corvidus from? Uh, so we learn that, of course, Alec knew Garrus and Garrus's father, and so we get all this thing that I kind of like rolled my eyes at, which was like, oh, this is how it links to Shepard. <laughs> I was kind of like, do we really have to link everything back to Mass Effect and Shepard and go through this whole thing of like, remember the trilogy wasn't that great? Um, But it ends up linking in kind of an all right way, which is that the Alec then gets in contact with the benefactor because he he basically is told like uh, that Shepard, it's kind of the call is set up to be right about after Shepard had come back from uh eden prime and the council had rebuffed uh shepherd but was still made a specter i think that's about the timeline right as shepherd would have been setting out to all the different novaria and pharos and all that to try and prove uh that Saren was working with the reapers and alec flips over and calls the benefactor basically grills them saying like hey what's up you know more more than you're letting on like this shepherd person it's sounding real you need to talk and the benefactor essentially lets slip that they knew in theory that the reapers were coming and that shepherd was just confirming it and that is why the andromeda initiative was started and also that was why the timetable for it was moved up because they wanted to get out of there before the reapers showed up we also then learn that ellen is alive and in the cryo bay uh alec has put ellen rider on ice she is not dead she is in cryostasis with the hope that in the new world in andromeda they will find a cure so there's our greedfall link (laughs) what is that uh so Ken, let me start with let me start with what you think about the benefactor as a motivation because I felt like this was a very obvious we don't learn anything past this point. We can ask some questions uh, of Sam and of other people, but we don't really ever get an answer as to who the benefactor is, whether I mean clearly it is a person that is in Andromeda now because they would have had to kill Gn unless they hired someone to kill Gn. But it's very likely that whoever started this initiative also wanted to GTFO before the Reapers showed up. So the benefactor is likely in Andromeda and alive. And it feels like one of the first of several ties that we have to what would have been an Andromeda sequel. So how do you feel about the benefactor? So I, I don't know that I necessarily agree like or at least definitively agree that the benefactor is somebody that is in andromeda and alive because when you think about like the list of people that would have known about the reapers at that point that list is very small and so my gut reaction has always sort of been that the benefactor was somebody in cerberus whether that was like the elusive man just like i want to ensure a home for humanity in the event this all goes south mm. and then like hired somebody to kill Gian Garson, that's, you know, I mean, that's all, you know, speculation. Like, we, again, we get no real clear-cut answers to who this person was. Um, because, like, you, you straight up ask, who was it? And then Sam doesn't even have, like, 
theories. He just says unknown. So what I do appreciate about this is that it it feels like a very concise and believable way that because like Andromeda, like the very premise of it is they leave the they leave the Milky Way galaxy, so they you know behind the scenes we can say because like Bioware didn't want to address the state of the Milky Way after everything that happens because that's you know kind of going against the whole nature of the ending of the game. It's like you're supposed to you know just kind of live with your choice and not really know if things worked out. So to me that they kind of like it's almost like an acknowledgement of like the reason that they went to a new galaxy both in the universe and in the development of the game itself that those felt very connected felt like a very natural sort of way to both tie it into the old games but also really dive into why this move makes sense beyond like you know a lot of it's kind of like oh i left the Andro- i left the milky way for all my gap year because i was trying to find myself and you know that's all well and good, but from like a granular sense of like why this thing had to happen, it felt like a very strong tie to the Mass Effect universe as a whole. So on that front, I really like this twist. It feels like I compared it into my notes. It feels like the chapter zero of Danganronpa two, where like you're the entire time you're kind of under the impression that your thing is very tangentially related to everything that's come before, but then suddenly like in one scene it all is connected. And I liked it for that because I don't know it's. I, I've i been... I, well, I was, at the time, very vocal that I didn't feel like I needed another Mass Effect game. So, like, when they made it feel like a very natural sort of sidestep, side story to everything that came before, I liked that. I, like, I just... I thought it was, like, a very smart way to make it all come together. I... So, first of all, it's not the elusive man. And I can give one simple explanation as to why... Uh, there were all kinds of different alien races flying out to Andromeda, and there is no way that that xenophobic asshole was not just sending a bunch of human cruisers out there. Well, I mean, also taking into consideration the Andromeda Initiative was a thing that existed before the Benefactor comes in. It just, like, like Jean Garson says that she was running out of money, but then the Benefactor, right. like, approached her. So I don't think that, like, you can be like, okay, here's a massive sum of money, but you got to leave everybody else behind. I think that more or less just kind of seems like a a move out of convenience of like I I want to ensure that humanity lives so this sure is, they can all come along. This is also a series though that took a character like the Shadow Broker and was just like, yeah, it's a giant monster that that got really angry at its owners and then became super powerful and smart and wealthy and powerful. So, I I definitely think it's a new character that's supposed to be poised as one of the lurking antagonists. Maybe they end up playing an elusive man type role in an Andromeda sequel where they are kind of getting you to help out against an enemy who may get teased at the end of this end game segment, uh, but their intentions are not pure and you are often dragged into matters where you are making the lesser of two evil choices, etc., etc. Uh, mm. but I do agree. I like, I like that it at least gives us a sense of why such a mass exodus happened and not just, not just the like one race. Cause I could kind of see humans being the sort of race that would be like, let's reach out to the stars. Let's go. But Asari, Turian, Salarian, Quarian, all these different arcs suddenly launching, there had to be some sort of unifying 
force behind it and then there also had to be some sort of drive behind the scenes to want to have happen like i don't think the benefactor is a sole actor either i wouldn't like there would have to be some sort of organization behind this the scenes that is making Mm. all these things happen that is spread out across the various arcs uh or else it wouldn't make logistical sense so i like that i like that that immediately takes my mind to where that could go to where those things could develop uh And I like the and, way. And like, I was gonna say, and like to be fair, like my my theory about the elusive man is not like a concrete one. It's just more about oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. we know so little. You can only kind of pull from what we know, and that's why somebody that we because at that point the Reapers were not a publicly known thing. It makes sense that it would be a character that was to some degree associated with Shepard that would have known about these things beforehand, mm-hmm. and. And we get a little, like, another nice little tie-in where we can hear, uh, we can use Alex's uh, communicator, or, or rather, like, logs to hear different messages, whether it was uh, him and Garson talking right before Garson was assassinated, and then right uh, after Alec arrives and in, in the Helios Cluster, and then uh, we also get to hear the Palvin SOS right after the Primark. Uh, has died we get to hear the alliance sos that hackett sends out uh, we get a message from liara that kind of brings that whole relationship with alec uh full loop where she signs off as a uh a member like a crew member of the normandy sr2 uh it, it all kind of brings things neatly full circle and then kind of catapults us into this last bit where we uh get to meet up with our rider sibling and find that uh our our mother has been hidden in the cryostasis pods under a pseudonym uh and, and we get i mean it's it's basically like a, just a nice little cut scene that is like okay we have something to fight for here it's not just the two mm. of us we can have a family again and this is why dad gave his life there's even some nice bits with sam where uh sam is talking about how uh it learns so much about death and human existence just by living inside alec and then living inside you uh during all these different pivotal moments in their life that's very sweet and again like you you note it here in your notes but like it's just bonkers that this is all optional like i'm not saying Mm -hmm. it's necessarily groundbreaking i'm not saying it necessarily turns my opinion of the game around in any way in fact it just makes me a little bit more frustrated that i'm looking at the structure of this and i'm looking at what has been put in the main game like on the critical path versus what has been put behind these collectibles and just wondering why those decisions were made to structure the narrative in this way and to put things where they were It, it just it seems just disjointed at times and and like they're they're maybe it's misguided like yes yeah i mean like we can I mean, we can wonder, but like it's it's not like the structure of this game has given much reason to wonder about why a lot of this shit was done this way, because it, it's meant to be this game that occupies great swaths of your time. Like, when, it, you know, the more mm-hmm. concise, linear path would have been way more simple to play, probably develop, write, and it, it is like some of the most important things in this game are hidden behind the most contrived possible structure they could have come up with. 
Right. And and this kind of like lets us segue a little bit into Movie Night, which is the other Bane side quest that we're talking about, which is also just hidden behind a lot of collect fest and open world bullshit. Uh, and maybe doesn't feel as story critical as Ryder Family Secrets does. You know, and we didn't talk much about it. I really like the Ellen Ryder reveal. Like, I just thought that was good. I thought that was yeah. nice. I, I don't know if you had anything else to add yeah. about that, Ken, but... I think amongst the... Like, among the various things that we're going to talk about in this episode, that, where they leave these hanging threads, it was the one, I think, that... Like, if that was, like, the sole thing that this game didn't wrap up, I would have maybe been content not mm-hmm. having another game, because that doesn't, that doesn't feel like it necessarily needs the resolution it's just like that's a nice thing to like leave those characters on like you know whatever the end of the game is like these characters have a hope and a purpose in andromeda that is goes beyond like being the pathfinders and being part of this massive initiative like they have a very personal stake in what comes next like i didn't i don't necessarily need to see ellen Ryder get out of that cryopod and be completely healthy just mm-hmm. like i liked knowing that for them that that you know the siblings they have you know a reason to keep going right it's it's just a nice little thing to like taper it off on not necessarily this massive dangling thread which i can't imagine we're gonna have any of those ken (laughs) oh no of course not uh but with movie night i i got like the structure the the narrative structure of this which is that liam kind of offhandedly mentions that you should have a movie night to blow off steam and then it kind of escalates and escalates and escalates, and it, it ties in a lot of different uh, tidbits of character very well. Uh, you know, people are suggesting different things, like Suvi suggests a snack based on, a, you know, an Angaran recipe, and then Vetra's like, no, that's going to taste like butt. Just get popcorn. <laughs> uh, and then uh, PB and Drax start making bathtub hooch, so you gotta go get uh, <laughs> Hangover Cure that Lexi suggests, and Jaw wants a, a plug-in that can like make you feel the movie more, which is maybe the one part of this that never feels like it pays off in the actual like finale of this quest line. Mm. And this was another really frustrating fetch quest, because it was just a lot of flying to a planet, walking to a merchant, buying a thing, then walking back to your ship and flying to the next bit. But yeah, I mean the the thing though, like and again, it's a failing of how we structure the show this season. Is like this one specifically. They if they it's like not as it's not touched on as much as I would have liked, but you know you'll get to certain points in this fetch quest, and they are you know we played them at the very end, so it's not. But like they are walled off by like story progression, so like you'll do like one. And then you'll go to, like, you know, a massive amount of the game, and then a story mission, and then you'll do another. Because, like, there's a point where, like, there are several points where Ryder says, like, oh, yeah, Liam wanted to do it, but we put it on hold because of this thing. Like, because of the exaltation uh, place that we found, or right. in respect to the Solarian Pathfinder who might be dead, or whatever. Or, like, the Krogan Scouts, I guess, whatever it is yeah. that Ryder says. Yeah. Um, so, like, in the, bu- the busted structure of this video game, it makes a lot of sense. In the way we played it, maybe not as much. So let me then throw this because I, that was again, that was the first thing I thought of was I was somewhere on Aya running back from getting another thing. And I was like, oh my God, like this is probably super frustrating to me. But if I had played this in the intended order, maybe it wouldn't be. And then that, I kind of had a moment where I literally stopped in game and I just sat there for a second. I was like, 
I've said this about so many side quests and so many side missions in this game. Like, oh, maybe if I played it in the intended order, it would flow smoothly. That suddenly made me think two things. Okay, one, how did they ever test this game that they didn't notice these hitches in the in the progression of the game? Because it felt like it would have been obvious. Again, I don't want to like completely armchair this. Like, I... I, I don't want to be a Pokemon fan right now, but it's um, it's it just feels like painstakingly obvious that there are pacing issues with this game. But the flips, the other part of this is that even if I start to look at it as okay, I'm going to do this main story mission, that I'm going to do all this stuff. There is so much organizing you'd have to do that I think you'd have to have some sort of to do list in front of you that you were tacking things onto like post-it notes that you were shuffling around like almost a spreadsheet <laughs> i can tell you now like the place the, the times in which i've played this game like kind of more organically not the way we have structure for the show i would have like a notes app on my phone where i would be like listing stuff on different planets i needed to do so i was like okay if i know i'm going to aya i need to do this this and this if i'm going to kadara i need to do this and this and that made the game like altogether less frustrating to play but it was also like I did not. I never had to do this in Mass Effect Three. Yeah, and I even think about like, okay, let's compare it to a recent game. I just got done. Not just got done. It's been about a week or so since I finished Death Stranding. That game actually has a very good system for linking together multiple quests that you might do. Say you're delivering one main story mission package, but there are a few prepper spots along the way that you could also deliver packages to to up your rating with each of the preppers or things like that it has a very organic way of not just letting you set all that stuff up and prepare all the way ahead for that but also then giving you the tools to route that out what that looks like so you're not just moving towards one quest marker you can set yourself an actual line that you can follow like a gps line on the ground that will navigate you around terrain and things like that through the various quest markers so you can have one natural mm. flow of progression and and i i like th- quick yeah quick question though like does death stranding have like a one seamless world it it does not in the sense that you are thinking of where it would be like one giant open world it has a uh, kind of i would say three two two and a half major hubs uh Mm. but for most of that time you are kind of moving within those hubs there are no deliveries that span across those hubs for story Mm. reasons but uh i i see what you're saying that like if you try to do the same thing you might be moving through planets and stuff like that that creates kind of a disjointed feeling but then i start to go okay why why then are we having these steps where i'm going to a planet just to talk to somebody who then tells me to go to another planet and it's that's what just kind of gets on me after all this time is that i just wish someone had been sitting down i want to know if someone had sat down and been like okay what does our quest progression look like and how do we turn this into the number of steps that will feel good without having to subject a player to repeated load times repeated onboard offboard with the ship repeated transitions through different areas like how do we make this feel smooth because we will get to the the reason ultimately why i'm talking about this because there is i had another aha moment during this end game segment (laughs) uh but 
overall, that maybe is the most obvious difference between playing Andromeda and playing the other Mass Effects is that feeling of I am wandering through this open world versus I am playing this much more linear you know mass effect 3 had side quests and things like that mass effect 2 had side quests and and world hubs and things like that but it never felt as scattered and mm. unorganized as andromeda but it was does. just because like they they introduced quest lines and then settled them on the same planet. right like you didn't have to like there was almost nothing that i ever had to start on like in a hub world and then go back on the normandy and then go somewhere else and then go then go back and it i mean it just doesn't it, and a lot of it doesn't even feel necessary because like you can just write these characters that like are quest givers and quest receivers and put them on the same fucking planet. Like it's not like, or or use the VidCon channel, which goes woefully yeah. underused in this game. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyways, I don't want to get too off track with that, but that was kind of my frustration up to this point. But then we get to the actual movie night, and we get some finally some like Citadel ass moments mm. here where everybody's hanging out having a good time watching this uh i think it's called the last of the legion it's like this that sounds ex- right. extended yeah. director's cut of a movie which apparently has blasto in it and I, you could only tell that if you go looking at the the text or the the screen cover or whatever as you informed me before this started mm. but yep. uh it's it's a very it's a very funny, like, it's, it's just a very endearing bit that we go through here where we're just kind of, everyone's talking over it and making fun of it, uh, critiquing mm. the way that these soldiers are fighting in the battles. Uh, I see we both said that we would seduce the enemy, which then gives Jaw like, this great sideline where he's like, <laughs> or why spoil the evening and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was just like, Jaw, <laughs> oh, I love you, Jaw. Mm. Why don't you have a better loyalty mission? Um, <laughs> and it all culminates in uh, Ryder trying to outact uh, the actors of the movie by pretending to mourn for a dying callow and there's like that great line <laughs> can't feel my gallbladder do you even have a gallbladder oh <laughs> it's worse than i thought <laughs> it's uh it's all mm. so good and it ends with this little mm. moment of of you and your love interest like gazing into each other's eyes on the couch as the love scene plays and everyone's very happy and all that and it's mm. i i really like this um, I do have a weird thing about it. I don't know if this is the right place to bring it up, or maybe the epilogue's a better place. I think the epilogue's a better place to bring it up. Uh, but all right, pen in that. Yeah. Uh, overall, I like. I really enjoyed this. If anything, it just showed how much like Bioware has progressed from Mass Effect One to Andromeda. That they recognize yeah. how important that crew chemistry is to mm-hmm. making a good cast of characters. And even though we've kind of had our our issues with the various members of the Tempest, uh, it still feels like a very good crew and one that you're in the scene. And again, I love that it's not just your combat crew, but like Suvi and Callow yeah. and Gil are all here and Lexi as well. Uh, they're all just like yeah. hanging out and having a good time. It feels very, it, it's good. It's like a nice little thing. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it's one of the, I mean, and it's going to be like a recurring thread of this episode. It's just like, there is so much... I feel like there's so much potential left in these characters. Mm-hmm. 
that it makes me upset that we might not get it. But we can discuss that a lot more at the very end. Yeah, no, don't worry. I, I have thoughts on that, too. We'll get to that in the epilogue. <laughs> um, so, okay, Meridian. We start by integrating the Ghost Storm tech, which sounds really cool. Ends up sounding cooler than it looks. Because uh, we I, we don't get to see the Ghost Storm tech. Yeah, I, I mean, was, it happens, like, off screen. I was a little like... bummed by that. I was like, come on. <laughs> can't do that uh mm. and of course cora like karen's us as we're about to head off to meridian like to find a direct order like, yes like cora what do you think we're doing here you can get off if you want uh but as as we get we get suited up and we do the hot drop onto meridian we we apex legends drop onto meridian uh <laughs> we get into some video game ass video game here where it's like, okay, you got to activate the, the towers to turn on the, the not vault of Meridian. And this whole section was pretty forgettable for me because it's kind of just a lot of shooting and it doesn't, mm. I think there are actually bits later on uh, in this end game section where there are better examples of combat arenas, whereas the ones that I was running into here felt very samey. They would kind of be laid out in a sort of circular way with various waist-high covers scattered about. There'd be a turret that I could maybe uh, take control of, and you just kind of flank around, and at first you're dealing with just remnant. This The one cool thing that it does is that at first you're fighting just the remnant and then eventually the the cats start invading as well and so you're kind of fighting with them as you're activating these different towers and the things that we're doing and we could talk about the story stuff in a second here but i just wanted to say like the combat the actual combat of this game and then the puzzles there's like one puzzle in here that was just as far as i could tell completely inscrutable and even when I looked up a guide, because I got frustrated after messing it up three times in a row because I was not understanding the way that the puzzle was being communicated to me, I read in the guide that they were like, yeah, yeah, no, it's super, like, it does not even attempt to make this stuff clear to you in any way. Uh, the one where you're hitting the symbols in the right order, they were like, yep, no, it makes very little sense. You are not, you are not losing your mind. <laughs> so... For- you didn't just follow the trail of the... Is, it was like literally like a zigzag on the ground. Is that what you're supposed to do? Because it was like trying to yeah, hit the thing with the runes. And then it's, hit the thing with the runes, and I thought yeah, I was you, supposed to hit them in an order. I mean, you technically are, but it's like a, like you scan and you see the wires going through in a, like a zigzag motion. Mm. Okay, I didn't think of that, but I thought it was like trying to communicate the runes to me because it had like runes popping up on in the ground too and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, follow this, and then it, that was not the right answer. So whatever as i just of all the puzzles so far in this game i was kind of surprised by how i would have rather have done sudoku in that moment i was like just give me a freaking sudoku puzzle i don't care um but the story things that we do here have some pretty big implications i can see why you wanted me to take jaw on this Mm. Uh, because as we discovered this is not actually meridian this is, I think they call it the Meridian Engine, or it's basically like a ship that has left Meridian, like a large, large ship, uh, and Meridian is somewhere else. So, 
the reason why it's important to have Jaw with us. Uh, first, we get kind of all the the city stuff online, and then we go into an area where we find out that the Angaran were, as far as I can tell, if they were not already created by another alien race called the Jordan. Jar- Jordan? Jardon? Jardan. 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 Okay. Um, see, I always like get one syllable wrong. Uh, the, the Jardan. Uh, if they were not created by the Jardan, then they were very likely evolved from some sort of other being by the Jardan. So not only do we get introduced to another alien race who we never see in this segment, but uh, we basically find out that the Angaran are created, that they are creators of the Angara, essentially. Uh, Mm. Sets up some interesting implications, although having Jaw along was weird because he has essentially this breakdown where he's like, I need to talk to the Moshi, like, what this changes everything what is going on and then pb's like hey we got another tower to do and jaw's like let's move and i'm like wow he recovered fast from that (laughs) bounced right back uh it's probably different i imagine if you do it the opposite order of what i did uh because i went left and then right and i imagine if you went right and then left different it would probably flow a little bit better but they gave me the option and uh they lost that 50 50 so um how how did you feel about this this revelation because i have a i have like varying thoughts on it uh at this particular point like actually in the mission i've kind of like absorbed less of what it meant for the angara which i mean we'll talk to joel about that later and more just like it kind of makes you realize that the entire helios cluster seems to have been like a kind of experiment to like a like a really advanced species that you know we don't see but like they created the Angara, they made the remnant, they used Meridian and the vaults to like Terraform. Create different eco yeah, like Terraform yeah. different ecosystems across the galaxy. So like and we'll get into it with Suvi later, but like the implications as to what you know, this at least this, this section of the universe and I mean like, to tune us at the Milky Way, like the idea that there are these creators and people that like facilitate the path that you know various civilizations have gone through in the math of that universe like you know we don't know anything about the Jardin's intentions but like that's, that's Reaper-esque that like they manipulated the ways in which this section of the Andromeda galaxy evolved and you know but something was coming after them like we find that out like there is something, something ostensibly bigger and more powerful than them even and so, like, just, like, the implications of what, you know, like, it's, it's weird to say that, like, we get to the end of this game and, like, there are so many different, more, like, factions at play that we didn't even know about that, you know, in the event that there is another game, we don't really know what the conflicts are going to look like. And that that is enticing to me. I'd want to know, like, are the Jardan, like, the Reapers? Are they, well, like, hold, slow, the... slow your roll a bit, Ken. Slow your roll. We're getting to, to end game stuff here. We're getting to <laughs> end of the podcast stuff. Okay. Uh, all right. I will right. say that you took the words out of my mouth. That was the first thing I thought of, was I was like, that's some Reaper-ass behavior right there. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Where I was like, cool, so Helios Cluster, gonna get harvested. Got it. Taking notes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did think it was interesting in terms of because this is the second time now that the Angara have had some sort of shocking revelation that uh, 
Yeah. Oh my god. Like first it was, oh my god, the cat are really just Angara and also pro- likely other species, but the ones that they've been fighting have largely been Angaran. Uh and then the second revelation is, oh, we were created too. And I'll we can jump ahead a little bit here and just say that there is a converse like a dialogue you have with Jal after this where you kind of talk about like, hey, so how are you doing? And and he has like a very somber tone. He's like, uh, are you coming to see if uh, I've, I'm finally broken? And I was like, oh shit, like, Jal, buddy, like, come on, man. And then he just completely turns it around. He's like, this is, this is not devastating for the Angaran. This is an opportunity. Like so long we thought that our lives were just to fight the cat and we would live and die fighting the cat. And now we have some greater purpose. And even if that purpose has been destined for us, that's still something that we can aspire to and break free of. Like it's, it's almost liberating the way he talks about Mm. the, the new destiny they have set out before them. You know, the implications aren't great. And, and it's almost like, it's almost like talking to uh, Legion in a way where, where Legion's like, we were made by the quarians but that does not define us we are going to create our right. own society we want to live as ourselves and, and we don't want to be beholden to that but we also acknowledge that that is where we come from and that we can grow past that and there's something admirable mm. and and wonderful about that because i mean that's the story of so largely the story of andromeda is people trying to outgrow the things that they were born into you know as people outrunning their past outrunning their origins to to become something better alec Ryder is trying to cheat death with an ai like it's it's not it's not yeah. as subtle as it thinks it is sometimes it's yeah. not kojima but it's not subtle um and and as we find out so the cats start attacking meridian and we have a brief moment where it seems like it's going to be a last last stand moment but then we turn the defenses of the city on the cat fleet take down uh a ship and kind of fight our way back and uh realize that the scourge whatever the scourge is uh altered the path of whatever meridian actually is and so we need to try and figure out a way to trace where meridian has gone and one thing we gotta point out though yes before we move on from the city we do find out that this place was likely the place the scourge originated from and it's Mm, based on the logs that we find well yeah well and based on the logs that we find it seems like the scourge like we don't really get a, a, a definitive answer but like Sam, I think, hypothesizes that the Scourge might have been a weapon used against the Jardan here, or something that the Jardan had done caused it to spring up from the city and Meridian itself. Mm. So, just another thing to, to wonder about. Another another little tidbit to, to put a pin in. Um, as we're back on the Tempest, uh, Tan tries and plays nice again, and of course, Ken and I imagine Bolt told him where he could shove that. and uh but he basically says okay you've got the initiatives backing now and i'm like this is the fifth time we've been through this song and dance man just i can't wait to replace you (laughs) but uh we okay yeah we talked about jaw already um 
did you want to mention anything about about Joel and his his sort of last because this is like his last actual bit of character development we get in this you know we had the loyalty mission but this is kind of his last shining moment in the arc so are there any well, like... I mean, did did you talk to him about uh the job he got the offer that he got uh yes i think where he basically tells you that he wants to stay on the tempest yeah and that basically like he feels like he's found his place here yeah being sort of like this person to usher in a new future for all of them and that you know that felt like an, a sort of like the cap off that maybe his loyalty mission was missing and there but in, they're also like the wider the bigger implications are the ones about you know what they learn at the remnant city and that was that was also more of the moment of like this character has some somewhere to go beyond what we have seen in this game which you know just makes me bitter and sad so maybe we don't need to talk any more about that mm-hmm. it's um there are a lot of really interesting discussions that happen here as you point out like going down your list here suvi has an entire thing about her faith that you finally get into and really critically examine in light of the jardin and and you know she starts to think like oh through my belief system like the things i believe could be true could could also lead to to mean that there would be a mortal creator that we are imperfect Mm. creations too and it's that this is the point where i was like okay i get what they were going with with suvi what they were going for with suvi Mm. i I can see it now i i enjoy this a little bit more uh made me want to be like okay maybe i if i was ever ever to play this game again I might consider a Suvi romance just to see how that mm-hmm. uh, caps off. Though I imagine it's probably not as interesting as other romances, just because she is not a main crew member. But mm-hmm. that's that was that was nice. I enjoy that. Yeah, and I it's like a really refreshingly frank discussion about religion and like you know video games. Like it's not like video games don't have like opinions on religion, but this is more like a very frank relevant discussion about the concept of faith and like you're like basically you can be like as she's having this crisis like you can be like you know your your faith will bridge the gaps between what you've learned and that's you know that's a you can she even like says like so are you saying that i'm going to delude myself into continuing to leave and you have the moment where you can like that's not what i'm saying but like i it was one of the moments where like i very much was represented by my writer and i was just kind of like yeah that's kind of the nature of the concept of faith and religion is that like it off it often is used as sort of this catch-all defense against new information and you know i mean not no offense to anybody that is religious that's just like how i believe in it that's what i believe that the like the very basis of religion is kind of like finding ways to make mm-hmm. what you believe fit everything that ever is thrown your way and then she kind of like is you know accepting of that she says like you know what? You're right. Like I want to believe in a god, so I'm gonna keep doing it. And I was like, all right, cool. I I liked Finger it. Your guns as I leave the room. I liked it. I haven't I haven't talked much you know. about my own faith on here, but like I was raised extremely Christian. Um, not like not like extremely like I didn't go to Catholic school or anything, but I was I was raised uh, where I was going to church every Sunday and I was leading worship and things like that. And I would say probably around college i started to question a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. it started to change a lot of my mind about that stuff and to the point where i i frankly don't know where i am nowadays i'm mm-hmm. I'm in a point where i just like to believe that there could be some sort of higher power but maybe it is some sort of 
in you know like imperfect being like us that feels almost more mm-hmm. suiting um and and i don't really view religion as a way to like be good or bad or be rewarded for good or bad i see it as a, mm-hmm. as a coping thing for a lot of people right. and i don't use it for that but i understand why people do um I don't know. It's faith is a hard thing to talk about because you know, it, for everyone it's different and it ha- right. it can have a lot of really positive connotations and at the same time have a lot of really negative connotations and you only need to look at human history to see that. But mm-hmm. uh you know, great works and terrible atrocities have both been done in the name of faith and to bring that up, I actually really respected the way that Andromeda went for that and tried to do that and, and also approached it in a way that felt very even-handed, did not try to shy away from it, but also didn't try to like completely downplay it either because you could have so easily mm-hmm. gone the other way and just had it be like like one of those like copy-paste emails that people always send around and shit like that where it's it's either the mm. the student tears down the atheist professor or vice versa <laughs> uh and and i felt like there was some level of care given here to to have it be yeah. nuanced and i appreciated that a lot as somebody who struggles with that often himself um which has has made Suvi one of the more memorable characters. You know, a character that I did not like when I played this game the first time, only got about halfway through. I was like, oh, Suvi just kind of feels toss away. Uh, now I'm like, okay, no, Suvi's great. Suvi's awesome. Yeah. Um, and we get a few other... I'm going to kind of skim through some of these other moments that we have because they're they're kind of surface level compared to the, the meat of what we need to get to here. Um, mm. Vetra has... Um, some anxious moments here. Uh, we have a nice little scene with with Drac and also with Lexi, where we get a little bit more insight into who they are as people. Uh, Drac is concerned about Kesh, but it, you also get this like very nice little cap off with it. Lexi, of course, is working on her night off. Big mood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I really like Lexi's character. I think this is one of those cases where I actually like. I've talked about this a lot in terms of Dragon Age Inquisition, where I respect that there's a lot of characters that they had in that game where you could only romance under very specific conditions or just could not romance even if you flirted with them. Mm. And Lexi also falls under that category here as someone you cannot date even if you can flirt with them. Uh, and I just like that that character a lot. I think it's extremely well done with Lexi. It's not like she's this amazing standout character, but I, I ended up liking her character a lot more than I thought I would by the end of this game. Yeah. But Ken, we got to talk about Gil. Cause I came, <sighs> I came out of this section like, Oh boy, I have thoughts on Gil. Uh, so yeah. before we get to the stuff we really got to talk about, let's get to your love scene with Gil. Mm. Um, take us through, take us through the hanky panky here. How, you know, how is it? So, Unfortunately, it does not get the same level of like extremely not safe for work. Cora PB oh, jaw. Oh, dude, the PB stuff. one. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> They're gunning yeah. for it. So the thing that I do like it as a jeez. You, you know something weird about that scene? PB is riding a dick that is not there if you're playing anything all right. Yep. I don't know what's up with that. Yep. I don't know who like didn't yeah like have the foresight to like address that, but whatever. 
Uh, anyway. Ken, so, Ken, there. Do we want to get into the the form and function here, or are we just gonna say that there are ways, there are mm, things? <laughs> no, let's, let's let's talk about something else. Can so, we can we get a call in? Can we get a call in from one of our guests here? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, so for the guild scene, like it starts off like you know nah, they're making out on the wall of Ryder's room, and then Ryder pulls him over to the bed, and then Gil's like kind of feel like I need to talk, like say something about this first and he kind of has a moment like you know I have as a person like when it comes to basically everything in my life I'm like flying by the seat of my pants and not really giving a whole lot of care to stuff but I want this between us to be different and you know then you can be like yeah I want like the safety and like stability of like a real meaningful relationship here and like i in my massive book of headcanon shit, like, that was, like, my problem with Reyes, because, like, I, he reveals that he was lying to me the whole time, so I'm like, alright, I'm gonna shoot you for that, because that is what I do in Mass Effect. And so, like, when I get to kill, I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to. And then, like, they have... I mean, this might not be appreciated by people that, I mean, I guess that are not gay, but, like, Gil more or less asks Ryder if he can fuck him, which is, like, like, okay, like, that type of sex is, like, very standard for heterosexual people, but, like, when it comes to, like, actual homosexual relationships, that is kind of a conversation that they have to have, like, is that something that you want, and is it not? And so, like, while it's not explicitly stated, like, the, it's one of those things, like, kind of like we talked about with, like, Cortez back in Mass Effect 3, where, like, they, they are very aware of, like, the ways in which navigating that kind of relationship is different, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that a lot, um... And then so, you know, then they do it, it like, they, they make out for a bit, and then it fades to black, and then they are both naked on the bed, and Gil asks, like, is it too early for me to, like, use the L word right now? And then I was like, I, it took me three and a half games to get that from Caden, so no, let's say it right now. So it's a really good scene, like, I, I wish that it had gotten, like, the same level of, like, production as some of the other ones did, but, you know, compared to, like, the co- copy and pasted shit from... Like, the end of Mass Effect 3 for, like, Cortez and Trainer, Like, I I liked it. It was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... Yeah. We get to, like, the conclusion of Gil's stuff where, like, it is... It was almost perfect. Like, it... Like, the entire arc of him, like, trying to realize that he needs to be, like, a more stable person and, like, responsible person and, like, how that ties into his... Uh, like identity in the initiative it all came so close to coming together to make something that was really interesting and like contemplative and introspective and it becomes like the grossest version of this plot line and it, like first of all okay you tell me how it went for you first because I've never seen the platonic version of this oh scene. boy can Oh, buckle the fuck up, man. <laughs> um, All right. Oh, so um, I'm just kind of take this beat by beat here. Uh, my rider, female rider, walks in, uh, talks to Gil. Gil says, you'll never be- believe what's going on. Uh, rider's like, what's up? Gil says, uh, Jill wants to have a baby with me. Uh, wants me to be a father and like not as like a surrogate thing now not necessarily you know like doing the whole 
Tango himself, but, you know, through the miracles of science, uh, but actually be father to this child. Um, and, and he kind of implies that, that Jill gives him an out to be able to say, uh, you know, he could just provide the the necessary ingredients and then go along his merry way. But Gil implies that he doesn't necessarily want to do that. You know, he's kind of torn about whether he wants to, you know, just cut and run or whether he wants to be there and be the father. Now, this is a, this is an incredibly nuanced topic that, you are given one of two choices. <laughs> You're given two choices between, which is just great when we're using nuance. Uh, a binary choice is always what we want. Uh, <laughs> and you can basically tell him like, no, yeah, dude, just, you know, chonk that thing out and then move along and keep being you, Gil, just have fun. Or you can be like, no, you got to be a father to that kid. Are you dumb? Uh, and, and up to this point, I was like, okay, huh, I was like, okay. I was like, okay, cool. You know, like I'm on board with all this, like be a father to the kid and all that. And then it starts taking a turn. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and jump ahead a little bit, Ken. I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit. Uh, I'm sorry we are cheating. I'm going to be bringing up stuff from the epilogue, uh, where you are then talking to your crew after the events of the second Meridian mission. Uh, he then kind of starts to veer it into discussion of, oh, Jill and I, Jill and I, Jill and I got to work on this. Jill and I got to figure out what we're going to do. Jill and I got to figure out what we're doing. And there's even a line that happens before the Meridian stuff when you're having this discussion where you say like, and this is, this is a point where I kind of got frustrated with the words that it was giving me versus the words that Ryder was saying, because you can say like, yeah, you should do it for love. And I was like, yeah, do it for love of the kid that you are going to have. And instead, Ryder was like, yeah, but you love Jill, don't you? Like, that's what love is, is being there for someone else. You love Jill. And I'm going like, okay, well, you know, maybe that's just like, you know, they're really close friends. You know, they do love each other because love is not just a single thing. It's a it's a, it's a multitude of feelings that can culminate in platonic or sexual ways and then we're gonna jump ahead to meridian real quick uh the way it caps off is that it kind of places them as like um as like a couple almost like a strictly platonic Mm. couple but in very much father and mother roles that veer very closely into husband and wife with like you know gil will be like oh i want to name this kid this thing and you'll be like should you ask jill about that first and it's like i'm kind of sitting here i'm like this would be kind of a funny laugh line if that was the actual trope that they were playing out but like it i I don't want to use the word erasure like harshly Mm. here but it really feels like in the platonic version of this quest line, you suddenly launch into like, okay, now Gil's, you know, still gay, but still also now in a like kind of relationship with Jill to raise this kid together. And even like refers to you as like auntie pathfinder and stuff like that. And Mm. it's, it left a gross taste in my mouth, man. It just, 
Yeah. I was sitting there like, even if you're not going to, you know, if you're going to have that open, because ideally you want to have that open because, um, as I assume you were about to, to tell me about, there is the option then if you are romancing uh, Gil, where that would then factor into what the family dynamic with this kid would be. Uh, and you want to have mm. that option open where it would not necessarily then become, you know, like, oh, well, who's going to raise this kid? I almost... Like, mm, I just don't like that they suddenly turn it into this, like, nuclear family thing. Like, that's what leaves mm. this, the, the sour taste in my mouth, is that it, it feels like it immediately veers into, like, oh, well, for this kid to have a health, like, be raised healthily, it has to resemble, like, a nuclear 50s leave-it-to-beaver family as much as possible. Mm. And that's what I don't like. I feel like there could have been some level of like, what if what if Jill had a significant other and Gil was talking about like, oh, you know, we're trying to make decisions between all three of us about this kid's future. It gets kind of like weird and things like that. Or you don't even need to throw a significant other onto Jill, but you just kind of like frame it as, oh, you know, we're friends, but we're also having a kid together. That kind of puts a new angle on the way that we normally relate to each other because we're also trying to be good parents i really appreciate all the help you're giving me pathfinder it's this is like a really weird situation to navigate i'm glad i have someone here who can help me through it like things like that would have been so much better than this like weird immediate feeling where it is like hey like gill and jill this oddball not couple raising a kid together it feels sitcommy in the way it plays out mm-hmm. and i'm just like it's and, and i'll let you talk more to it but yes i, I completely agree that this storyline was going so well and then just like it, it's like that gif of death stranding that was up on the Twitters not long ago where the guy's just jogging along on the highway and then he trips <laughs> and all his shit falls off the highway and then falls into a river like 20 feet below and then floats down river off a waterfall. <laughs> like that's what happened. And I'm just going like, just don't trip. Just, you just had to not trip. You were so close, but Ken, <laughs> I want to hear how the romantic side went because I am very interested in hearing how that goes. So I did want to, Ask wait like, is there a scenario in the platonic version of this where you can tell Gil not to do it? Uh, I assume so. I did the I did the other option. I did the 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 do it option both because I felt like that's what I wanted to tell him, and also because I wanted to see where that one progressed versus telling him not to do it. Uh, I don't know what it looks like if you tell him not to do it. Okay, well, so the, the ways in which it diverges here. So, like, most of that's the same, to the point where he's like, Jill wants me to do this, and then you can be... Like, I was... In, being the responsible boyfriend that I am, I was like, that's not, like, something to joke about. This is, like, a very important thing, and that's supposed to be your thing right now, that you're learning to kind of, like, take it seriously. So, like, let's tuck that for a second and, like, talk about the actual ramifications of you helping to bring a child into the universe. And then it kind of, like, turns real fast, because he's like... Jill's not asking for me to be the dad. She's asking for us to be the dads. Like, so it implies in that scenario where, like, you are in that relationship with Gail that, that, that she is offering to be a surrogate for this gay couple. Hmm. So rather than, like, being in this weird, like, f- weird situation of, like, 
parents that are not together that are trying to like be co-parenting for like you know like at least like in a sense that sort of problem is goes away and like the the implication here is that Jill is offering to be the surrogate for Ryder and Gil to have right. a child. I do real quick want to jump in. I just checked it on my phone. Uh, while you can not support it, uh, it seems like it happens either way. So, I know that Jill will end up having a child regardless. I don't. You don't know if it's Gil's or not. I like, just I, I, I checked the I checked Gil's right. wiki real quick, and it, it made it sound like you can either support or not support. But there will be a kid either way. Uh, but that may be an option. Is yeah. that like Jill has a baby? And it's just not Gills or something like that. I don't know. But. Right. Well, so when Gil is like, you know, this is what she's offering to do for us, that's when you can have the moment of like, I don't want to do this right now. Like, I can't do this right now. And then, like, if you say that, Gil's very much like, don't, you don't need to, like, explain yourself to me on that front right now. Like, everything, I understand that right now might not be the best time or whatever. But there is that part of me that comes like you know from the the character that i have written my writer to be wants that like that is something that like you know he didn't have this great relationship with his father he wants the stability that he wasn't getting elsewhere and he's like this is i'm here in the andromeda galaxy i came here to start my life anew this is like a thing like this is this is a step on that particular ladder but when it comes to like everything that you said is like 100% like you know that is one column of the problem here my problem is the because Jill is the one who offers this thing to Gil the story like Gil loses the own agency in his story because like it's not his it was not his idea it was Jill's and now he's having to react to it like a sort of I kind of always imagine like a better scenario for this would have been for like, it would have, one, it would have done wonders for Jill as a character to, like, not be this sort of, like, very heteronormative, everyone's value in this thing is whether or not they reproduce, is if, like, say, she got in contact with Ryder about Gil looking into this on his own, being like, I have just been busting his balls all this time, I didn't expect him to take it seriously, and then you have that same, like, opportunity to support Gil in this or not, and it sort of, like, I guess... I don't know if, like, you would need to redeem Jill in that scenario if, like, she didn't hypothetically try to make gay men repopulate. But it also, like, it would factor into Gil trying to take initiative to be the more responsible person to, like, be setting down roots and all these things that he's had conflicts about this entire time. Mm -hmm. So, like, I just... It's so frustrating because, like, I feel like if they even had, like, one consultant to be, like, that's not the route you need to go for this. It could have been avoided, and it could have gone, like, where it seemed to have been going for the whole game of, like, giving Gil all these opportunities to finally, like, kind of grow up and take responsibility for the shit that he does and not kind of just be fumbling along in this galaxy. But then it just makes it into this very gross, heteronormative bullshit that is, like... It was, like, it was literally, like, the worst possible way they could have ended this because like it was to that point it's like a very interesting lore driven queer story that you know it makes sense in the world of, of Mass Effect Andromeda and now it's just like they they took like the worst way out of it and I just like it's so disappointing both for like the, the sake of Gil as a character because like again I think he 
up until that moment is like a very interesting character that is has like a very you know easy to follow like point a to point b arc that just gets like it, it gets, literally gets taken from him and given to somebody else and i just i like the idea of my writer and him being dads i like that a lot mm. i'm just still kind of upset to this day about how i got it yeah yeah it's it's a bummer <sighs> thanks Bioware. yeah um real quick i'll just talk on the pb romance uh, i ended up doing this after all the the end game stuff uh because for some reason mine didn't activate like it should have so i had to like go to my uh, private quarters after everything happened and there was like a little cutscene that you could start there uh by uh activating some stuff that was next to the bed uh it was fine i don't know i so a yes it was extremely not safe for work in a way that i was like i didn't feel like there was any added level of intimacy in that mo- in the opening moments um more like it was very titillating in a way that i was like mm. okay this feels weird and again there's like there's the added layer of like i'm playing a female writer but i am a dude in real life so i was like i was sitting there i was like this feels weird for me to be watching (laughs) but um (laughs) but once it got past that part and again yeah they use some animations in ways that are like you know again not that i have firsthand experience with this specific kind of interaction but i'm pretty sure that's not how that works uh you get to you know the mind melding the asari mind melding uh which pb kind of starts off with her saying she's like very you know she's not trusting of a lot of people she's um i i don't know if they've talked at all because i got the implication i got from this scene it suddenly made me question some things so i wanted to ask you i don't know if you're we need our expert on asari banging in here but i'm trying to remember if they can do the horizontal tango without mind melding like or or if melding is a critical part of that i mean they've still got if they've still got all the parts so they can do okay i don't know okay like if if you're asking me like do they get like the full sensation i don't know about that well no i'm not talking about uh, that i'm saying like i it's not like an actual part of their normal process that's like a special thing that they choose to do as part of it mm. um Okay, in that sense, then that dialogue bit makes it, it does not make it clear. But I think the implication there is that PB is saying she has not mind melded with anyone before, um, yeah. which is, you know, it's kind of sweet. You know, as as her as a character, you know, she's always very you know guarded when it comes to that stuff. You know, you you've talked a lot about her previous relationship and things like that. So it's it's nice to have that. Uh, and then it gets into a part where. Ryder and PB are actually mind melded in her inner mind sanctum or whatever, and they're like intertwined. And Ryder's like, it's so quiet and peaceful, and you can say that I love you and all that. And that part, I was like, okay, this much better. Like, this is the thing that I was expecting from this. And then it goes right back into like sloppy bang town, and I was like, okay, back to this now. <laughs> like, um, so overall, like the pb romance overall kind of feels a little undercooked if i had to say and maybe that's just by virtue of again this is 
just one game we have not had that much time with pb so while there's like cute asides Mm. like she she makes several references throughout the romance dialogue and stuff to how she and Ryder first met um you know the the leap and the tackle to the ground and all that it's and, and that's that's cute and all that um and there's there's some good dialogue but uh it doesn't feel as impactful as other relationship bits have been and i think that's just by virtue of it being one game you know it's they haven't built up that character enough to get there um which is (laughs) it's the thing i keep delaying about the epilogue that i guess is maybe a time to bring up now is that i I really got a feeling in this end game in general that i was like oh yeah i've really only known these characters for like one game so far so it kind of in some parts i feel reaches trying to get you to care about these characters like you've cared about mass effect characters in the past and kind of overextends in that regard by having all these very final conversations with them where they're like oh Ryder, our journeys have meant so much and all that and i'm like i'm thinking back to like mass effect one and i'm like you kind of had that with some characters but really you didn't you know it felt like they worked harder to earn that by the time they got to three and you had those kinds of conversations so yeah um that was kind of my feeling on PB was I was like, uh, that's, it's, you know, it's, it, it was Liara's Mass Effect one romance. Like that's, that's about the, yeah. the level of where it was at. And it had a lot of nice production to it. Um, one might argue a little bit more than was necessary, but you know, wherever you get your <laughs> kicks, that's, that's where it is. Um, and that's romance in this game. We're no longer romantic in this game. Uh, never again. Well, that's true. We got final conversations later. Oh, well, fine. Uh, but first we got to head back. Suvi has found a way to get to Meridian. Uh, we do... Ken, why does it give us seven different areas to scan if we only need three? (laughs) And three of them are right next to Meridian, and, like, four of them are on the other side of the cluster map. Like, I was sitting there, I was like, did they just do this because they realized they had a whole bunch of planets and, like, areas that they just never got to? And they were like, oh, better go over here and have you do something here so we can justify having this blip on the map. (laughs) Um, I I got no idea, Ken. But we go do that, and then we come back to the Remnant City uh, because our plan is essentially to kind of surf the scourge to get to where meridian is uh we're going to find the path through the scourge that meridian took and and trace it by sending a bunch of remnant ships down it uh which is just the kind of dumbass you know plan making that i am on board with (laughs) up to this point you know like that is the dumb thing that i want to do uh but before we get we we get going on that, uh, the Archon finally uh, plays his trap card and says, "Like I've been in your head the whole time, Ryder. You fool! I've I'm." He has access to your implant, which I'm still not fully sure on how he got there. You know, I know they have the the thing they have the thing where you got injected in the neck and all that, right? And that's kind of the implication. Yeah, but but. He uh, he doesn't have access to your implant. Like he is on the Hyperion and he has access to Sam. Is what's going on? Oh, so he's already stormed the Hyperion by that point. 
Yeah, because like as we're starting to like fade in and out, we see him on like and Sam node oh, doing something. Sam, okay, and then like the Ked are already on the Hyperion. Yeah, so yeah. that's I was going to say at this point we then jump. So we're getting basically mind attacked by uh, the Archon, and then we jump over to our sibling who has sprung into action. Uh, the Ket are attacking the Hyperion, and we get a. Uh, a comms pip from Sam basically saying like, Hey, uh, your sibling's dying. You need to go restart, reboot it, reboot the implant. Essentially. It's not going to save. It's not going to save, uh, Sam's connection to Ryder, but it will save Ryder's life in the process. So we get this cool sequence. I did actually really like this, that you play as the sibling and the sibling is this basic soldier class, you know, has mm-hmm. a basic gun. Yeah. You are kind of struggling to take on some very basic level cat and all that. Uh, that was cool. That was neat. And they thankfully knew exactly how long that segment should go. It, it does not feel like yeah. it overstays its welcome either. Uh, yeah. You do get the biotic dash, by the way. Uh, which that was fun. I was like, oh, cool. I still have this. Um, but once we get there, we kind of realize that once we save Ryder's life, it will let the Archon know exactly where the the Ryder sibling is. So the sacrifice is made, and back on Meridian. Well, I was, was going to point out just like the one one thing that this segment really brought home to me was that in a hypothetical sequel it would have been cool to have them as like a squad mate that was kind of like the Caden and Ashley like you get these two very distinct characters that play like the same role to a certain extent but they have their, their own motivations and story and so like you know in Mass Effect Andromeda 2 I have Sister Rider here as a squad mate that is going to have like a very different trajectory to somebody who is playing female writer who has brother writer and you know it's just a another thing that we're going to have to like hope for one day i guess yeah 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 um they do again like i we don't need to like tread over it a ton but also like your your brother slash sister depending on which uh gender writer you're playing uh it does not get a lot of development i didn't even bother to like character create mine i i was just like cool default writer good good stuff because i didn't they don't really make it obvious that that is that character is going to play a role at all i was like okay cool is this just like it's like metal gear solid 5 where i'm gonna do a whole character creator thing and that's only gonna get used for like one big shocker reveal near the end um not to spoil metal gear solid 5 but (laughs) uh sorry if you're listening to this and you play kojima games uh i've spoiled a lot already um but yeah, it's it's just not tied in well. I did I did like the reminder of Dunn, just like Dunn existing because I felt like we had not seen much of Dunn up to this point. And yeah, I mean she's got she's got like a side quest that we didn't really cover, but like there is like she is somewhat involved, but you have to like kind of go looking for her later. Right, and and it's nice to see her because she does like quickly become involved in the goings on of the the end game in a way that I appreciated. So, um. Uh, so after we get through this, uh, we, we come to, and, and oh, one thing we did not address that I, I, I skipped over because uh, I forgot that this happens before and not after the bind attack. Uh, we find out the Meridian is kind of like a Dyson sphere. It's like a giant hollow sphere, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. 
that's like a, a, a I don't know it, it, it's an orb it's just a giant orb uh, it looks like the traveler from destiny kind of um, so we come to and we're locked in and we need to get a remnant door open and normally this is a thing that we just don't give a shit about but we don't have sam in our head anymore like sam's not responding so Ryder has to basically force the remnant door using what they can remember and if you recall um earlier on i I think somewhere like at the very beginning of the game someone tries to open a remnant door without sam and it's like extremely painful i think your i think your dad might try might have tried to do it and was like oh that's painful and then like uses sam and it's like okay that's that's better um but i might be i might be imagining that but uh we are i don't distinctly remember that but i'm not going to dispute that it might have happened yeah i i want to say it was established at some point that interfacing with remnant consoles is painful for anyone who does not have the interface like you have uh because right then you start to do it and it like extremely hurts rider and you have to like make several attempts and then as you get back out to the the tempest and everyone's freaking out about what to do next the hyperion's under attack what are we going to do um you know they probably have sam and your brother and they're headed to meridian right now um sister sister yes sorry your your sibling sibling uh Ryder's just like i'm done listening to this bullshit and walks over and just turns on a remnant console and summons a fleet and is like let's go let's party <laughs> which is was a big mood i was like yes yes um god no that's that's actually one of my favorite scenes like they they called that very well having Ryder just like walk over there silently and turn the thing on and be like let's go um but it does obviously hurt them as well because you see them like bleeding from the nose and stuff uh so we roll out and this is kind of the actual meridian mission which is we're going to kind of gather our stuff so we uh we we talk to everyone on our way up to the bridge where our significant other is waiting uh and we're we're getting updates on on how everyone's going so here's the thing ken uh mm. i did not i don't think i got krogan support in this one i don't mm. i don't know if that was specifically related to my choices or like what happened there but i i do think that if i did have krogan support i did not notice it in this mission like in, in mm. the mission that's coming uh and i did like see all the other people pop up and like help me out and stuff so but this is kind of where we get our recap of all the choices we've made and how it's going to be reflected in the people that show up for our big fight against the archon on meridian so we've got uh jal is bringing in the angaran uh cora is of course (laughs) talking to the asari huntresses (laughs) um (laughs) I don't understand it, Ryder. I've been left on red. Uh, uh, um, if if you have been good with uh, the Krogan, if you did not leave the scouts to die, so here's here's the thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about this, and maybe where I was finally like, man, I really they made me feel like I fucked that decision up. Um, if you talk to Callow, Callow does not say anything about Solarian forces or anything like that showing up. Now, granted, I think if we had done truth and trespass at this point that might have changed and we would have had those forces there but 
and obviously we had not done that but i was just kind of feeling in like in that exact like switch off that we would have had uh that that didn't come through so i was like oh that's kind of a bummer um we get a bunch of little tidbits from all our crewmates saying how they're preparing um yeah suvi has that great line about like it's kind of like we're all your sam now because they're all reaching out and getting everything set up Mm. we get one last little nice moment with uh with our with our significant other who is very aware that we are killing ourselves using the remnant to mm. to go there um I, I i made a nice little line that was like um they're like doesn't it hurt or whatever isn't it hurting you and and writers like not as much as it hurts being apart from you or whatever and i was like oh that's nice i was like good job good job writer good line mm. um yeah like Gil says something along the lines of like your poker face is still wanting so I can tell that you're actually like in a lot of pain right now and I was like stop reading me I'm trying to keep my shit together <laughs> and and he's like I mean you don't have to right now it's just us but mm-hmm. yeah. but we, we have our big assembling the forces moment that you have to have like they, they definitely go for like a Mass Effect 1 slash Mass Effect 3 ending where you have all those forces showing up to go to war, although most of them are really just remnant forces and there are also, like, other ships, but it's mostly remnant forces. Uh, Mm. And we get into, Ken, what I am going to say is the most Mass Effect mission in this game. This is the most... Mm. If we think of the trilogy and the way that those missions happen, especially their larger blockbuster missions, you know, you think about your iloses and your vermeyers and things like that this is the most similar to that sort of structure because it is very straightforward there are a lot of cutscene interstitials the the battles are very designed there's not a lot of traveling between them uh it just felt like a mass effect game for a large part of this Mm. final section here uh and Fun fact, as I was doing movie night, uh, one of the merchants I stopped by while I was on the Nexus was the vehicle merchant, who I had not been to yet. Uh, I just hadn't really ever thought that I would need anything Mm -hmm. for the vehicle. And so I picked up agility mode while I was there. And that's going to be very crucial for something that's coming up here in a moment, if you've never messed with agility mode. Um I have not. So oh, Ken. You have to oh, touch on this. Let me tell you the joys of agility mode. <laughs> so, um, we we start out with this big, uh, big fight. You know, we kind of have a back and forth with the Archon. Who again? God, dude, the Archon sucks as a villain. I'm sorry. He's like the worst villain. He's just. I don't care. He's he's the most GI Joe cobra commander villain in the world where he's just like ah i'm going to you're going to all get exalted Ah." and i'm like dude you don't have any motivation you're not interesting i don't know anything about you just shut up like i wish we'd gotten maybe maybe it's hidden away somewhere maybe it's behind like a million other collectibles like the motivation of what makes the archon want to do all this and especially like why the why the cat feel the exaltation is the thing to do uh because i mm. felt like even with the geth we at least had some or, or with saren like saren's a good example of a villain that gets very well established in a short amount of time because we spend 
just about as much time with Saren as we do with the Archon, but very early on it's established that Saren is very mortal, very aware of his mortality, knows of the coming stuff that will happen with the Reapers, and has decided that it is better to assimilate or and purge rather than go through a long, drawn-out massacre. Uh, that is basically his thinking. And it, it gradually, like, we even get to see him reckon with this over time in a very good Bioware way. But we never get that with the Archon. The Archon's just a freaking comic book mm. villain, man. And I, I do not care about him at all. I, I mean, my personal thing has always been that the Archon is less interesting than sort of, like, the fact that there is, like, a splinter amongst the cat and that, right. like, probably the the Primus would have been, like, the actual interesting villain in a hypothetical sequel because, like, she's just fed up with this shit and is, like, you know, making these deals to try and undercut the Archon, which we will actually have to touch on. I, know, I guess you wouldn't well, have seen it, but we will touch yeah, on it. Yeah, we'll, in we'll get to it in a second here. Uh, I know where it happens. But, uh, so we, we get into our actual fleet fight and we're we're having some trouble, but we get a little flashback to Alex's uh, memory catchphrase, which I, I wonder if that doesn't happen if you have not seen the... It doesn't. It doesn't happen if you haven't seen the, the memory flashbacks or whatever? Mm-mm. Oh, so then do they just come up with the idea naturally or something? Yeah. Okay, that's kind of yeah. it's a little disappointing, but... <laughs> um, we... Uh, we basically kind of like drag the scourge across the cat ships like it's it's again the scourge we have very little context for what's going on i basically realize they look and they're like oh look the remnant ships are kind of carrying the scourge with them as they fly so what if we just like dragged a blanket of scourge across the cat fleet uh that's really about it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it's it's a thing that happens and then the archon retreats into meridian and we follow after him uh it again let's note that the archon is flying hyperion uh and as we get in yeah. as we get into the actual airspace the archon kind of takes off in his own ship uh and leaves hyperion kind of just careening about uh, and then we get into some really, really good stuff here, Ken. Because we just straight up, mm. we Mako drop onto the ground in Mass mm-hmm. Effect style. And Ken, this is where I want to bring up Agility Mode. Because Agility Mode basically is an added mode that you can use in either one of the, the Nomad's gears. Either the, the all-wheel drive or the the faster front-wheel drive, or back-wheel drive, I guess. Um basically in either the speed mode or the terrain mode that turns off your traction in exchange for speed and ken mm. when you are throttling when you are pumping that nitrous and you are in your speed mode and you are in agility mode and you are just careening down this completely straightforward end of halo you know like ilos you know race to the mm-hmm. end uh man i was just like oh oh this is good this is good video game right here if it, it feels really good and then you hit one small rock and you go like flying into the air and it's like oh god <laughs> but mm-hmm. um well i guess that was my follow-up question was like 
would that have theoretically made like Skyrim up the side of a mountain a lot of a pain in the ass? No, because like, you have no traction. No. So like if you try to even oh, if you okay, try to turn, you will start fish tailing like crazy. Um mm. it, it's it's kind of like you're on ice in all the good and bad ways. Uh, to where you are like moving across the surface at a much faster rate, but the second you try to turn, it just goes to hell. Uh, to the point where I kind of want to go back to Vold and just kind of race across the ice real fast to see how <laughs> quick I can go, and then try and turn and die. But uh, <laughs> uh, that was a good time because I was there's all these explosions happening and everything. There's like all this stuff popping off. Uh, we get to see all our pals come in. So like Sloane Kelly shows up. Uh, we get the Pathfinders all showing up. Uh, there's a great cutscene where uh, I think it's uh, for me. It would have been Reka. I forget who it is. The Salarian Pathfinder. If you did not save Hager, who Hager? Hager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get that name wrong. Hager. Uh, they like take out a ship and it's super awesome. And like the Asari Pathfinder is doing a big old biotic shield and all that. Like they're all just. I think uh, Avidus is just flying a ship around, shooting down Remnant. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a real good moment of, like, the teams assembled and all yeah. that. Like, a real Avengers moment. Uh, the cavalry's here. Yeah. And and I think the, the Moshai shows up as well. And you just get, like, this... Like, all these nice little reminders of all the people that you have worked with throughout the game. It's, it mm. feels very... Like, this is the part where I was like, this is Mass Effect right here. This is This is what I have been craving so sorely and i was like getting to the point where i was like all right man this is what i wanted i'm starting to get it i get why people like andromeda and like i got to this part you know eventually it does kind of just shut off the nomad for story reasons uh we skipped over it there is a part here where the primus's the ship is like firing on you or something and i assumed in that part if I had disabled or if I had made the deal, then it would not be firing on me, but mm. it couldn't hit me cause I was driving so fast. So it didn't matter. <laughs> um, mm. yeah. And also, but you have an option there, I think to where you can still turn the deal down if you don't want it. Like you can opt to not use the kill code, yep. which, yeah. which was nice. I kind of like that. Um, but as, we go we go flying through and i think it also reduces the number of cat you have to fight one thing i have not brought up yet at this point is that i have had to fight several behemoths at this point which are the the Mm. exalted krogan and which i did not yeah uh which you would not have to fight if you did not uh leave them behind and this was again severely making me regret my choice because not only are those things extremely hard to kill they have the like way too high a level marker on all of them but Mm. they just show up among the enemies like in the normal encounters that you would have otherwise Mm -hmm. there's just also a behemoth there and there's probably about like five to seven encounters where you are dealing with that and i was like okay they Mm -hmm. they made me feel that choice a little bit you know i i did at least appreciate that i was like okay they really made me feel the ramifications of what i did um and maybe they could have better exhibited what the positives were. Uh, though, I, I will say, we'll get to it in a second here. I mean, so we start fighting through uh, the inside of Meridian, uh, which is essentially a vault. Like, let's just be real here. It's a vault. It's just a really big vault. Yeah. Uh, 
as we're fighting through the forces, we keep getting backup from all the people that we've been working with. Um, we get to a point where the Hyperion is going to crash land and Dunn orders everyone into the cryopods and basically says she's going to like eject the cryopods last second and go down with the ship. Uh, I did not know this part, Ken. I thought this happened no matter what, but it seems that uh, if you have all three Pathfinders, Dunn survives and like the Hyperion does not mm. completely get annihilated uh right. which you would have had to do core's loyalty mission and then convinced ricks to to take up the role which i like reading this right now i like that because i think that's a better way of adding in loyalty in a meaningful way other than like oh does crew member liver die or do they mm. do they have their like super move or not uh i like that right. way of just adding that in uh <laughs> and then Ryder just kind of like well all our shit crash landed here so i guess it's ours <laughs> it's this is our planet yeah. now i thought that was funny i kind of like that i don't know <laughs> i was like you know what that's funny i like that it's it's like well our trailer landed here so it's like a trailer got caught in a tornado and landed somewhere else it's like <laughs> that's where we live now <laughs> that's what it imbe- i guess like my king of the hill texan ass that's what i immediately went to <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> uh and so we we head further and further in uh this is where in some of these fights here as we're fighting through more and more remnant and i think we at uh we've already fought the one of the the archons toadies way earlier in the first uh in the first meridian mission but we fight another one of these uh super wizards whatever you want to call them uh i always call them wizards because they remind me of the destiny wizards Mm. um but at this point the solarian crew from the solarian arc shows up and helps you fight a bunch of enemies and i was like okay that's nice i finally got like that tie-in that made me go like oh good but then i was also thinking i'm betting if i had saved the krogan all the scouts would show up here and help me out instead so like i really just am struggling to see how like in retrospect i felt like i was making a good call but in hindsight this game really wants you to feel shitty about not picking the krogan (laughs) um Mm. which fair you know i should never doubt the krogan um nope but then we finally show up and uh the archon has our sibling in some sort of contraption and is basically like mind attacking slash controlling slash hacking meridian to turn it into a doomsday machine so they can like exalt or destroy like it's basically they turn in they're trying to turn into the death star you know it's it's the death star let's be be real here let's be honest with ourselves this is the death star uh and we get into this whole firefight where first we take out a bunch of uh ket and remnant but then we kind of have to fight around these doc ox style tentacles as we are taking care of interfaces that our sibling is opening up for us as they're fighting through the mind control stuff and ken i will say this is where my game crashed halfway through this boss battle was where my game crashed uh, luckily, it did start me right. <laughs> Rip. It, it did start me right before the battle, so I didn't lose anything. But I was just like, 
are you it was like two in the morning last night and i was like trying to finish this before because i didn't want to have to play any before we did the podcast and i got to this and it like crashed i was like fine i'm just playing in the afternoon tomorrow then <laughs> um mm. but i uh the combat up to this point in this last section had all felt very good felt very mass effect felt the way that i want them to mostly because they had a lot of moments where they could just design an arena and not have to worry about how it made sense in a larger open world architecture Uh, i felt like that was one of the issues with andromeda's combat design as a whole was that they had to make all these arenas kind of work within a larger open world architecture and so you'd end up with Mm -hmm. these areas where it's like very clear like oh there's going to be a firefight here or you'd end up with this area that just did not feel suited to the combat whatsoever and so these very designed discrete areas where you had these firefights felt very good that being said Mm -hmm. this giant tentacle thing is bullshit (laughs) it apparently just burps grenades at you like i have no idea what that move actually is because it just kind of like makes a noise and then all these grenade danger indicators show up around you so i was like cool it belched grenades at me that's a thing it can do uh and you just kind of fight a lot of remnant but not particularly difficult remnant at this point i was pretty skilled out so i replaced my one of my biotic abilities my singularity with a tech ability because i was just getting sick of not being able to deal with armor enemies very well Mm -hmm. so i leveled up incinerate to max and put that on my l1 so i could you know i could either r1 and then trigger with the lance or i could l1 and trigger with the lance and i'd have a biotic combo or a fire combo every time um but at this point like vetra was massively over leveled and i basically skilled her out to be a tank to where she had the super armor and all that to where she basically took no damage uh and all the enemies would always focus on her and then pb was just kind of there to throw biotics out and set up combo detonations for me Mm and a lot of this combat just felt super trivial at the end like i was kind of expecting some larger boss fight than just hold down an area and fight the tentacles and not die and i will say the one saving grace in this final boss fight which was really cool and i really enjoyed was that your whole crew kind of stagger joins in throughout it and you all kind of Mm -hmm. fight together and i i I didn't feel like i ever really saw that in the battles you know maybe i'd look over and be like oh hey there's liam he's doing something that's neat uh you know i felt like it maybe could have been better visualized yeah like again sorry my mind immediately went to greedfall and the way that that ends as you're kind of going up towards the final battle with your full crew and then they're kind of Mm -hmm. like staying behind in waves to hold off the the fight i almost kind of would have liked that more just so i got that real feeling of this is my whole crew like rolling out like we are we are deep we are locked we are loaded and you really get that initial sense of oh this is what it's like when every single one of us is fighting and then maybe you stagger it back down uh same as like the suicide mission does where you kind of get to that point where it's like okay we're picking our crew and then everybody else is staying behind i almost would have liked that a little bit more but i did like actually seeing them all in combat at the same time that was really cool so Mm i'll for i'll forgive Mm. that but how did you kind of feel about this ending here this last fight maybe it's just like the style in which i play which is still as close to like classic vanguard as andromeda will allow 
but I kind of like loved this fight just because it was like I was constantly moving, like charging across like these massive gaps and fighting all those remnant, and then like, you know looking to the left and seeing Drac and Liam and PB over there also helping out, and then. There's, like, banter going on throughout, too, because everyone's kind of like, oh, we're all joining in, this is a big old fight. And I, so, like, you know, the Archon's got this, like, weird snake thing. There's a a name for it, I don't remember it. And my go-to tactic with those has always been to charge up to them, like, and hover and just shotgun blast a little time. And, like, that is not something that I get to do a lot in this game because, you know, most enemies can survive one, maybe two shotgun shots so like it's just like it was I mean you know the majority of Mass Effect Andromeda is like you know with Sam you've got this you're supposed to have this character that is like this tank of a person that could just fuck up everything but this was like the point where it really felt like that like I had the, I had the Archon here talking about how superior he was and I was just wrecking everything he threw at me and my friends were here and we were all wrecking it together and it just felt like a more interesting boss fight than Mass Effect's ever really had. Because, I mean, there aren't, like, a whole lot of boss fights across the series in general, but, like, the ones that are, like, you know, the marquee fights, like, the Human Reaper or the Saren, like, husk at the end of Mass Effect 1, those are all very forgettable or frustrating fights where this just felt like, you know, sort of like the victory lap at the end of a Marvel movie or something where everyone's come together, we are just absolutely fucking the shit up, and, like, for that, all of, like, all of the above, it really, I just loved it. It was one of the more fun encounters that I had in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely having everyone join in makes it feel different, makes it feel a little bit more special. So, I, yeah. Again, I kind of tore through this, so maybe if I if I'd not just been, like, throwing max-level incinerates and then lances and just, like, annihilating things <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you dude the lance is mm. messed up it's a really messed up ability it's like reeve but better and when you upgrade it to where it detonates uh biotics in an area around the point of impact when you detonate a biotic combo like it just gets silly how much damage you do in a single burst it's it's wild that's my recommendation to everyone out there thinking about playing andromeda right now just go biotic just do pull and Lance, and you will be able to solo <laughs> fights for most of the game, and then just make sure you have someone with tech on your team, or like some incendiary ammo. You'll be good. Um, and then uh, we just take on the Archon. I assume that the Archon dies here. You know, we kind of get confirmation later that he yeah. dies, but it's not a very cinematic death that occurs here. Um, and the Meridia, Meridian lights up, and we bring everything back to life we get these nice shots of everyone looking out at all this wonderful wildlife around them and everyone's happy and we help our sibling up and we get this uh little moment right in front of the crowd where our love interest comes up and talks to us and i did i gave the heroic like we all did this this was for the cluster everyone worked together and all that i see you just smooched gill you sap (laughs) And then they give. I, 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 got, he, I was just like, we have children to raise, so somebody's going to keep this place safe. So. Children, plural. <laughs> plural. That's what I would have said, even if you didn't have the notes here. Um, and <laughs> and then we just kind of get like a nice shot, and we made it, and credits roll, and now we're in the epilogue, Ken. Uh, so we get like a shot of Primus, and who I now know is Primus, who at the time I was just like, oh, some rando cat. 
uh, kind of looking malevolent, looking angry, plotting, <laughs> you know, just kind of like, oh, yeah. I don't know, Ken. I still just, I feel the whole way about that stuff that I'm just like, I don't see them as interesting villains. Maybe with the Primus, it would be more interesting, the idea that, but still, the Primus wants to exalt everybody just has disagreements about the best way of doing it it's like you talk about the best ways to cook a chicken they're still trying to cook the chicken you know so uh, <laughs> i just still don't have that motivation there uh we jump forward our sibling has kind of come to um we get the implication that there has been a lot of hemorrhaging in the brain area for both the sibling and yourself <laughs> them from being mm. mind attacked by the archon and us from controlling all the remnants so maybe take it easy with all the sam stuff in the future uh and then we kind of get a choice thrust upon us and i knew i knew after i made my choice because i had seen your video earlier that day i knew after i made my choice that we had made the same choice uh mm. but we basically get four so we get four options here i want to know what one of yours was so my four options that it was given to me they basically decide that we need an interim ambassador uh for the nexus and base it's like really really vague what this person is going to end up being because they start talking about how they need to establish a council, how the Nexus will start to act as a citadel for the cluster, and then everyone will have their own delegates and representatives, but we need someone... Basically, this person is going to be the organizer of all this, who gets, who lays the groundwork for all, all that, and who right. also kind of makes the, the high-level Helios cluster decisions in the meantime. And I think it's important to note here because it definitely factored into my decision making that does not just include the initiative that includes ostensibly uh the exiles the angaran the krogan everything uh they're supposed to act mm. as an ambassador for the entire cluster essentially a representative and the reason you can ask them you can be like why don't we just vote on it and they say you know if we tried to vote many of them would not they would abstain they would not buy into it we need people to buy into this system and then we can start talking about what representation looks like but we need someone who can be agreed upon and it can't be you because then it would kind of look like you're just taking advantage of having you know killed the archon to seize power and all that which i was like okay i get that that makes sense uh but also it should be someone nominated by you because you're kind of seen as the one unifying force in the cluster who has worked with everyone mm. who has saved everyone regardless of background uh who has done the least wrong in the short time that everyone has been in the helios <laughs> cluster miraculously uh my four options uh tan puts forward reka as an option did did tan put forward the solarian pathfinder in your playthrough okay yep. okay Major. so the solarian pathfinder whoever they are uh for me it was reka for you it was hager uh and then you have kind of three others that you can explore by suggesting them, uh, which are the Moshai, uh, Madra, uh, Morda, Morda. God, why I always I'm always so close yet so far away with names. Uh, Morda from the Krogans, and uh, Bradley, who established Prodromos, mm -hmm. uh, is kind of like the mayor of Prodromos. 
and you can you have little options that let you kind of explore the reasoning and like the the pros and cons of each you know reka slash hager the salarian pathfinder would be kind of the most obvious choice but also kind of just a continuation of the same old shit that everyone's already had you know it's it's what's expected but it's also not going to signal any massive changes in the way that the nexus relates with the rest of the cluster uh krogan is is seen as unorthodox though i love that kesh just laughs uh that was a big mood like that was (laughs) Uh, I, I kind of dislike that they play that off as like the joke option. I would have liked to have seen an honest case made for the Krogan because I think you could make one. Like the idea that no. they are the most removed from the desires that everyone else has, so they would be the best in most cases to make those decisions. Uh, and also that the Krogan colony is the only one that had really been thriving outside of the exiles. Like also putting Sloan Kelly forward would have been an interesting choice, but um something with that sort of reasoning uh who who am i selling oh bradley the reasoning here is super slim they're basically like oh yes well he knows how to run a colony and then they're like oh but on a small scale not on a large scale and i was kind of like well that reasoning's super thin uh i feel like bradley is kind of put forward as like the anderson of the choices like oh you know it's anderson anderson's got this uh whereas the salarian pathfinder even though personality wise they're not like this is very much the udina choice uh and then we have the moshai you know the wise elder who has lived in the helios cluster for a long time has shown benevolence to everyone who we have a good relationship with who knows the angara very well even if she does not necessarily get along with all of the angara and would be a steady hand in organizing things and tan just the list of reasons goes on yeah but then i i even forgot what the reasons were that they said to not have the moshai because they were all just a dull humming in my head when i was like this is the obvious choice <laughs> like no it's the moshai i mean it was i, I think it, i think it was i mean well Tan even says when we pick her being like oh we're giving up so much influence and we just got here and then <laughs> then Asin's like yeah that's kind of the point like you colonial let the native people here <laughs> yeah. and like god bless Asin yeah it's just like the person that has lived here that is like has the most right to be in these discussions seems like a fairly obvious choice I don't know yeah it's uh I, I was glad that they at least had that voice line in there because I feel like they at least acknowledged it in that moment that like Tan is just an ass and that even Addison mm-hmm. is out here calling him out on it. I was like, okay, you at least made that effort. Thank you. An attempt was made. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So now now we go and party, and this is kind of the actual epilogue where we get even more closure. So Ken, this is why I bring this up. I feel like you have like parting dialogue with your party members three different times in the lead up to like the actual end end of this game and then even then there are bits of dialogue that you can then do after this is ended that Mm. add additional flavor and i just kind of felt like this game never knew when to end you know because it needed to be a living game quote unquote and it needed to have that like 
ability right. to be able to still do stuff after the credits roll but it's also a story driven game i get that there's that like friction but i also feel like they could have just said here's a definitive end like this is where it cuts off and it feels like it it keeps trying to one-up its own finales and especially like that's where mm-hmm. it became painfully aware that i was like yeah i've only known cora for like a game don't care that much about saying goodbye to her and having it feel really final and good and neat and all that like if anything it's really driving home that there's not a sequel to this game and it's not looking like there will be a sequel to this game anytime soon so it just gets kind of awkward in that context uh Hmm. but there are some there are some interesting tidbits here as as we go through most of them i'm just going to be honest i felt were just kind of like you know little little cap offs you know Cora's Cora's already working with teams and organizing them. So you're like, oh, typical Cora. Jal has a nice little bit about the Angarans and the initiative working together. Um, Liam's really happy about seeing people wake up. I like the veteran Sid thing. That was that was maybe my favorite part of all this was seeing them work together because in mine I like encourage them to work together. So they're very much like now they're a sister team of smugglers and all that and i was like oh that's so sweet i like this this is good um that was kind of the closure that we never got in the loyalty missions and the dialogues and all that we finally got some of that here and i really enjoyed that um ken you're gonna have to take the wheel on this one rin gi uh let's let's put a pin in her okay okay we'll get back to that we'll get back to that yeah uh Drac is sending out scouts and mine he made a little sly comment about what's left of the knackmore scouts <laughs> mm. uh, again not happy with me um suvi is working on a joint research project uh pb after an extremely randy exchange with my writer <laughs> um then suddenly goes into it does this all the time in the dialogue too i don't know if you had this with gil but you can have like with PB specifically, there's like the flirting option, and you can do that, and they'll kind of go into very hushed tones talking to each other, and then they'll just go back to talking normally like this. And I'm like, oh, that felt weird. That was <laughs> jarring. I didn't like that. Um, and so that definitely happens here. Yeah, I didn't have that. That with Gil, but Gil is also kind of like standing away from people. So uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, you're kind of in the middle of the party with PB. Um, yeah, Lexi's is pretty short. Kind of wish there was more of her, especially considering she was a bit of a surprising performance. Uh, Callow mm. has a nice bit about flying the, still flying the ship for you. Like everyone has a nice little like cap off. Uh, tell me a little bit about Gills, because again, I feel like Gills is the most meaty out of all these because it has actual like development in terms of his story. Right. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, in my playthrough in which we are having the kid, uh, says that Jill's pregnant, and he, like, in a really adorable way, says that he's like, what if we named it Mary for a girl or Dion for a boy? And then Ryder has a moment where, like, Mary Dion? Meridian? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And then he's, he's like, yeah, that's cool, isn't it? And you can you know, support him or not. And I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty great. I'll let you go with that. And then he's like, you know, but if you're not enjoying this party right now, we can fly away and go literally anywhere else. Callow's not, Callow has no idea that I can fly the ship <laughs> or can learn in a very quick manner. So it is like a really cute scene of like, you know, 
Like I think like you say like don't don't change Gil, and then he says, "Oh, you like this outfit? I guess I'll just wear it forever then." It's, I I had a bit of a different conversation just because I was like, oh, maybe rethink those names. And I was also like, you need to like start acting like a grown up mm-hmm. a little bit because you're about to have a kid. But I feel that also like gels with our writers' personalities a little bit. Um, and we get kind of this last scene where we're about to sneak out and the pathfinders catch us and they're like Ryder has a very good line about like nobody wants to party with the boss and and they're like i think you'd be surprised uh and everyone kind of comes over and joins you and you give one last speech you're on the bridge and you're flying off and that's that and you're just kind of back on the bridge after that and it's it's kind of a weird way to end it again i know that they needed to like leave it open for you to go back and do more stuff but i feel like in other mass effects they did a better job of doing that where they would still leave you in that sort of limbo where you could cross off side effects slash or side effects side quests slash dlcs and still they'd give you a little thing that's like you're in the post game now if you want to go do stuff you know right they wouldn't they wouldn't try to like justify it in the story that like they'd give you like a very definitive cutoff point and then they just kind of like throw up like a text box that's like okay you're free to do whatever and not have to like have the awkward scene of everyone going back on the right. ship so and i i think mass effect 2 was the one that actually like had that where everything took place after the suicide mission once you had done it and even characters would like address yeah. that and you have the same thing here where you can still talk to your crewmates and they will address the events of meridian and like the establishment of meridian i think you can actually go and start to explore a little bit of meridian once you like have gotten into this post game i don't think you can go very far but you can actually like go there to do the things that you might have normally had to go to the nexus for because that's where hyperion is now but uh yeah yeah it just feels a little little awkward so ken that's it that's andromeda so let me pose this to you a first real quick this won't take us long has your rank what are your rankings of the mass effect games now and has it changed since we started this endeavor uh yes and it goes for me three top to bottom top bottom yeah three andromeda one two okay mine is kind of yes two is still my favorite I think three is much closer to one than it was before. I still, on any given day, might give one or three the edge over the other one, but they're more closely tied. Whereas before, for me, it was like two and then one and then three was much further below that. And then Andromeda way down there. I think for me, the the main thing that's changed is my appreciation of three and Andromeda are much higher than they were before starting this. Uh, I don't know if that's actually changed my rankings at all, but I do think of them higher as games in, uh, on their own merits individually and as part of the series. Right. Uh, my other, the other thing which I knew we were going to talk about, you even have it in, in your notes here, is like, how do you feel about the future of Mass Effect? Um, I mean, it's hard to kind of say. I mean, well, so. The interesting thing is, in spite of, like, I guess, like, the perception of this game, if you go and, like, look at, like, quotes from EA, 
the game sold well. Like, I mean, to whatever degrees they had their expectations, that, like, they even admit, like, whatever the perception of the game might be, they made money off of it. Like, it, the sales numbers were high-ish, and, you know, they... It, the quotes that I saw was, I, I think, from Andrew Wilson from, from EA that was basically, like, you know, the sentiment around the series of Mass Effect, which is a fucked up thing to say, because the sentiment around Mass Effect... While, yes, for 3 and Andromeda, depending on who you talk to, it might, like, it... Either the series is very good or the series has been fucking ruined forever. Um, basically, like, Andromeda was... To, like from a business standpoint, a success. Mm-hmm. So it is strange to me that they just up and abandoned it the way that they did. When there was clearly like I mean we I mean we can go back to it now like there was clearly plans for DLC at least DLC because like so we didn't talk about it. Well, we skipped over it while we were doing all the sort of like epilogue stuff. But there is a woman uh, named Renji Renki. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. And she has found a signal from the Corian mm-hmm. Arc. And it's not a distress call, it is a warning to stay away. Um, so, the interesting thing, like, and like Ryder says, like, they clearly don't want to be found, all we can do is wait. And this is clearly setting up for, like, whether it's the sequel or the DLC, like, something, like, it is, you know, it is one of the major cliffhangers of this game. Like, not knowing what happened to, like, swaths of the Milky Way civilization that is coming to Andromeda, because that's not, like, we call it the Quarian Arc, but that also includes, like, the Drell, the Hanar, the Elcor, the Batarians, like, literally, like, the melting pot of every, everybody else in the galaxy. And so, as this game was being developed, there was also a book, Mass Effect Andromeda Annihilation, that was being written, and it's about the Quarian Arc. Um... One one thing, it's the best Mass Effect novel. You should absolutely read it. It's great. Um, you can, if you check out the uh, the audiobook, it's the reading is done by male writer's voice actor who has hella range. He's in there doing like literally every species that you can think of in the Mass Effect universe and pulls them all off great. Um, but the thing that and I like, I don't have any like actual knowledge here to substantiate what I'm about to say, but there was like a six month delay in that book uh, mm-hmm. release. It uh, it was originally meant to come out in like July after Andromeda had come out, or like a year after Andromeda had come out. It didn't end up coming out until like in seven day that year. So like it was like you know several months later. Um, my personal assumption, and like again, this is like totally based on me just assuming things, is that parts of that book were probably re- rewritten. So they didn't have to... Like, so they could add some sort of closure to that mm. and not have to uh, make DLC for Andromeda. Because basically, I mean, I, like, I, I, you should go read the book, so I'm not going to do it, like, tell you specifics. But the thing that in that distress call that they're saying, like, stay away from is resolved by the end of that book. Mm. And, you know, presumably when you leave it on that kind of cliffhanger, you assume that writer is going to be involved in whatever the solution is. So there's sort of, like, a contradiction between the setup and what actually ends up taking place. So my assumption was that they just delayed it that much so they could, you know, make make changes. And, again, don't, don't quote me on that. That is just my assumption. So all of this comes together. Like, I don't... 
when you ask me what I feel about the future of Mass Effect, is like I, if you were to put a lot of the stuff like in all these facts about what happened with the game in front of me, I would have assumed that you know they would have maybe taken the L and then you know just made the sequel and like taken all the feedback they gotten and make it the better game. Like they would like they did with Mass Effect One. Like Mass Effect Two is like very deliberately designed in ways that make it seem like it is a reaction to criticism given to Mass Effect 1. Like most video game sequels are. Making video games is a very editor process. So, like, I would have thought they would have just made the more streamlined game that could have taken place in Andromeda really, like, you know, doubled down on how good these characters are and started out offering some closure and wrapping up some stuff. And, you know, like, I don't even need a trilogy. Like, they could, like... Stuff that they bring up in this game, they could have reasonably wrapped up in a second game, but you know, there's also there's, honestly, there is like a, enough here that could have sustained a trilogy for sure. But so, in Seven Day, just happened last week, and I've been you know, I wrote about this and I retweeted it on the Normandy FM account that people seem to have a lot of ideas as to what should happen next with Mass Effect. Um, some of them. I'm gonna say right now are kind of bullshit. Like, they want them to establish a canon ending and just go back to the Milky Way, which, you know, is, like, from a fundamental standpoint, like, disregarding, like, the philosophy behind this franchise. So I don't know. And, like, and I assume that a lot of people make that sort of claim that they want a canon ending for a potential Mass Effect 4, as they would call it, because they assume that their ending is gonna be the one that gets picked. And if it was something else, they would probably lose their fucking minds. Um, it's... I want there to be a Mass Effect Andromeda sequel. I want, like, I don't really care to come back to a universe if I can't really count on the stories that are being presented to me to be finished. Like, I don't really, like... And that's the frustrating thing about this, is because, like, I didn't want Mass Effect Andromeda in the first place. Like, I... I was content with Mass Effect 3 be the end of it. Like, I didn't need to come back to this universe. But, you know, the powers that be, whether it be, you know, actual, like, hopes of monetary gain or, like, creatively, that's where Bioware wanted to go, I would have been perfectly fine without this game ever being made. But now it is. And now I have to, like, I feel like I've been, like, cursed, almost. <laughs> with, like, caring about this game and the characters in it. Because, like, I would have been fine if they hadn't showed up, but they have now, and now I'm, I have to be the one that has to deal with the emotional baggage of wondering what's going to happen next while everyone else is making up these really contrived ways in which we can go back to the Milky Way or that we can play as Shepard again oh. or some other, like, like you know, it's like the most tone-deaf, like, contrived bullshit things that people come up with. And, like, people that are, like, in positions of, like, influence online that are, like, even going on and making these sort of, like, weird fan fiction ways that we could possibly pull these things off. When It's like, why not just do the simple thing and finish the story you started? Like, why, like... Because they didn't... They either didn't play the story or they didn't like it. I That's the simplest answer. It's, it really is. I mean, not to, like, openly shit on other people on this podcast, but a lot of people came out of Andromeda not just... Yeah, I... From someone who literally just said Andromeda is his least favorite Mass Effect, I understand. Like, I definitely understand. But I also don't actively wish ill will against this setting or these characters. You know, it's 
it, it feels kind of weird that people want that return to Shepard. Like you were saying, like, why, what right. do you feel has been left unsaid in Shepard's story? Or is it just that you want, like, so let me, I'm just going to give my case real quick. It's, it's, it's short. Cause I'm not necessarily, I'm not tied to the idea of a second Andromeda. I'd like to see where this stuff goes. I also wouldn't hate a return to the Milky Way, though I would not want it to be in in any way that establishes a canon ending, like you said. I think most people that say that are assuming that the destroy ending where Shepard lives is Mm -hmm. the canon ending, and that's just because they want to keep playing a Shepard. And I'm like, you gotta let go. Mm. You gotta be okay with Mm. moving on to other characters at some point. Again, this is something I think Dragon Age established very early on and then kept going with. I I made the case... uh, was it last week? I don't know. Time is just a blur to me at this point. Uh, where Dragon Age was the one out here experimenting with that sort of stuff, where Mass Effect had one very continuous thing with one character, whereas Dragon Age was kind of going like, what if we had a different main character every game, and then your main character from 2 is now in 3, and they can show up in their character, and guess what? You might make decisions that determine whether that character lives or dies. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, that's bonkers, man! This is cool! Uh, and I kind of want to see Mass Effect swing for the fences like that. You know, not necessarily like bring your shepherd back just to kill them again, but that'd be kind of macabre. But uh, I, my issue and what I want to see with a potential next Mass Effect, because you think about it, like where did Bioware go from here? It went Andromeda, Inquisition, Andromeda, Inquisition, right? Yeah, Andromeda, no, Inquisition, Andromeda. I always get the order mixed up. Inquisition, right. Andromeda, yeah. Inquisition, Andromeda, so like two very open world games, and then straight into Anthem. And ostensibly what we are seeing next from them is a Dragon Age 4 that is very far off in the distance. Like, we will be done with our Dragon Age playthrough before Dragon Age 4 comes around. (laughs) So we won't be worried about running into that. Unless some miracle happens, that won't happen. And if it does happen, I mean, fuck it, we'll probably play through it then too who cares but it's uh my larger issue is with all the things i keep harping on in this podcast which is this game has structural issues this game has issues with the way it presents its systems with the way it um with the way it handles at some points with the way it renders characters like i felt i do not feel an attachment to this universe not because of the main upfront characters those are all presented very well but because everything below that upper crust of important characters all feels like just nameless side quest givers that were given a name shot mm-hmm. out of a generator you know they they don't they have yeah. very few defining personality aspects you don't get to know them you don't have very long side missions where you get to know them and I just didn't feel attached to Andromeda as a world. And that's because of the structure of this game. That's because of the Mm. worlds of this game, because of the way it just kind of threw mission after mission after mission at you and just wanted you to like take it all in without developing an attachment to anything. It never felt like I was spending Mm. too long in one place, which is a bad thing in this case. So that's that's what i want out of the next mass effect i don't care whether they go to andromeda 2 or whether they go back to the milky way or whether they go before shepherd's time and they do like a mass effect c-sec or something like that like i just want something that 
has that Bioware spark in it that has that feeling of like, I don't know how they get that back. That's probably why they aren't, you know, they haven't acknowledged working on it, even though they've been teasing it on in seven day and stuff like that, that I don't know what that spark looks like in this current world where everything is a living game and an evolving shooter with loot and stuff like that. I don't know what that looks like. I'd hope that they could just go back yeah. to basics, but I, that I mean that, and that's sort of like the. It is very reductive for just to be just like just make it like the right. old ones, but like in a in a world in which they, whether it was like something they genuinely wanted to do or it was something that like the industry as a whole made them feel a pressure to do, it like it is a bolder, more exciting game to like be willing to not waste people's time for 60 plus hours in a game that could like easily have been 30 to 40 and like that's the thing that's frustrating about Andromeda is like in spite of all the structural issues we talk about like that game is in there Mm -hmm. like it is surrounded by garbage and time wasting bullshit but it is very much there like the you know how we structured the show like as ill-advised as it might have been in places like in terms of just like getting from point a to b of like a thing we did get to like really focus in on those things in the way that we had these episodes structured because like we did have these episodes that were dedicated to the loyalty mission that like you know yes it had all the boring preamble before it but like we did get to the heart of that stuff and it is there it is very much visible and tangible but we go, we have to go through eleven different loading screens to get to it, and we have to go on three different planets to get there. And we like Bioware clearly has the capability of like writing the good story and like making like the strong like linear mission design. They clearly were able to do Mass Effect two and three, and you know in places in Andromeda, it's just like I don't know. Like I mean, we can ever we can and everyone on the internet says like. We can point to EA and, like, those are the bad guys that are, like, telling Bioware to make these big-ass games. And, you know, whether that's true to it or not, like, somebody that is, like, steering the ship to whatever degree it is that needs to write it fast. Because, like, you know, Bioware's dying jokes have been around for, like, Dragon Age 2, like, since Dragon Age 2 or some shit. But, like, with every subsequent, I'm like... You know, Andromeda is not technically a flop, but like we did say, it did. I mean, so sell well, but like, I mean, in critical reception, you could say that these games have been flopping since Inquisition, because even Inquisition, as I have learned over the years, does not exactly have a fond remembrance among the Bioware fandom. Well, it I mean, does among some people, and, but it does not have that level of attachment that like a Mass Effect Two has, or even like a Dragon Age Two has. I feel like there are more fervent defenders of Dragon Age Two than of Inquisition. Well, I think that is like, I mean, in retrospect, yes, but like oh, at the yeah, time, yeah. Dragon Different Age Inquisition like yeah, yeah. hit like it was all over like, game you know, of the years, countless game yeah, of the year yeah. awards, and like you know, and you know, there's everyone kind of like in a lot of instances, not just Dragon Age or or Bioware stuff. Like in a lot of cases, like you can like really be on a game like at the time, but then like as you know, time goes on, like you kind of gradually get to a place where you know it doesn't you don't revere it in the same way, but and I think, like, just in general, time has not been very kind to Inquisition oh. and, like, other open-world games that, like, people, you know, adore. Like, even to this day, like, people love The Witcher, and it has sort of... Like, it came out just 
later enough that like it missed the window to kind of seal Inquisition's game of the year fire, but it was close enough that people were like, oh, like this game is this way. Why was Inquisition? The way this I look way? at that dynamic is what we're seeing right now with the Outer Worlds and Disco Elysium, where people are looking at mm. the Outer Worlds and they're going like, yeah, it's a really good game but it's a really good one of those games like it's it's very reminiscent of the past and even though dragon age inquisition took a lot of steps to change the formula of that series in in general it still felt like a retread of a lot of things we've been playing already because it definitely was bioware just doing the like the open world thing like just doing that stuff and andromeda almost kind of see like andromeda was the two and the one two punch you know it was it kind of it almost like soured inquisition a little bit in retrospect whereas the witcher like that is easily one of the games that's going to be remembered a lot and like that was the point i was going to bring up was that we've seen rpgs change so much this decade we've had games that are mm-hmm. throwbacks that are incredible, like Dragon Dragon Quest. I always get that mixed up nowadays. Dragon Quest Eleven. I'm playing through it right now on my Switch, and that is 100% an old school JRPG, just with a 2019 mm-hmm. coat. But it is exquisitely crafted to the point that it's like, yes, this is really, right. really good. Uh, and then you have things like Disco Elysium, which are just going to text only, no combat. It's all dice rolls, but it it feels like this complete reinvention because of the way it handles your inner monologue and the way that different aspects of your personality become characters that then talk to you and have dialogues within you while you're while you're interacting with things in the world mm-hmm. it's really cool and you're seeing all these games start to evolve like even the Witcher 3 like I will be the first to say it's not necessarily in a innovative in any like specific way it's it's the sum of its parts that brings it all together into one cohesive whole and it's i'm just wondering where bioware falls on this scale now because they either have to try and match up to the open world rpgs that we're seeing these like grander and grander experiences or do they scale down and go for something like the Outer Worlds, go for something like Greedfall, where it's mm. this scaled yep. back experience that you could almost call like double A instead of triple A, but it's shorter, yep. it's more concentrated, it's going to allow them a better dev cycle, so they're not dealing with all this mm. stuff that they right. would have otherwise. You have to wonder what the future looks like for them in terms of development. And I mean, we've seen think pieces about it already. We've seen news pieces like reports from Schreier and all that, that talk about that. And that those reports are very much worth reading if you have the time and you've not done so, but it's, it's just a very odd time for Bioware where I feel like their next, they've got maybe like one or two decisions here that are going to determine what their future is. Right. And I think like, I mean, not to be like super fucking dismissive of, I mean, other than Anthem, like I do really love Inquisition and I do really, I mean, I, I do really love Andromeda, but, like, again, like I said at the beginning of the season, asterisks all next to that <laughs> statement. But, like, they have shown that they're not... Like, the studio that they have is not equipped for these games. Like, they're... Like, the where those games shine is always in, like, the stuff that they've always shined in. And, like, they don't need to be these huge things. Like, they don't need to match The Witcher because, like, they clearly have shown that they are not structured mm-hmm. for that. Like, the games that they make are not structured for that. And... You know, like, if you want to, you know, tango with the best of them, just hone in on what you're good at. Like, don't feel the need to be 
Dragon Age, Witcher, or Mass Effect. What's another fucking huge open world space game? Mass Effect, Witcher, whatever. And <laughs> like, just be the be the games that you know you're good at that you've not like. You know, people have problems with their with Mass Effect two and three, but it's not because of the structure or how well made it is. It is about various other bullshit that we've mm-hmm. discussed. In and those podcast. are like minor like, grievances compared to the things that we're talking about here, like massive like structural issues that just it like again a concentrated version of Andromeda. I want to see what that's like because I'd want to see if that changes how people feel about it if it doesn't have all this stuff tacked onto it. Right. Um, Ken, I wonder then, in this case, if something like... So look at Fire Emblem. I know this is like a weird corollary to draw, but don't worry, I'll get there. Um, Fire Emblem Three Houses came out this year. Massive game. You've been playing it. I've I've beaten one route already, and mm-hmm. I'm already working on a second, which I am aching to get back to, actually. Uh, that game was, like, helmed story you know all all the the art the story like the the very what you would kind of think of as creative that's kind of reductive to just paint it all that way but um like the story and narrative direction and the the music direction was all handled by the traditional fire emblem team but when it came to actually putting the game together to creating the battle systems and the larger scale of what they needed to do and also just you know like how much larger that game is compared to other fire emblems if you've played those i can't have you played other fire emblems besides three houses is this your Mm -hmm. first Mm -mm. oh Mm -hmm. okay so imagine if you took out all the school elements and it was just battle 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 all the way through like that is Mm -hmm. the jump that has happened here um Mm. yeah you can you can kind of tell like there's a lot that has changed uh that all went to i think it was koei tecmo that handled all that and Mm -hmm. that was like and i'm double checking that on my phone as i say that but um that was like a major shift because all of a sudden you have this idea that okay the people who know how to run the game are helming the game but then the people who can kind of develop more on it, yeah, with, the quote is, without the help of Koei Tecmo, it simply wouldn't have been possible, talking about Three Houses. So, like, does Bioware need to look for that sort of partner? And, and who is that? You know, like, who can... Maybe if they do want to go further into the Inquisition style, into the Andromeda style, they need to find somebody who's going to be able to solve those problems for them so that they can focus more on what they're good at and then make those things work mm-hmm. in harmony. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Ken. I'm just... It bums me out, because even when we criticize it, I really love these games. Like, that's one thing that this series has really reaffirmed for me, is how much I enjoy these games, and specifically the way that Bioware makes RPGs. And Mm -hmm. I just get bummed at the thought of those, you know, coming to an end at some point, whether due to studio reasons or whether they just decide to stop making games like this and start making more games like Anthem. Uh, I don't know. Because that worked out so well the first time. Worked great. Ken, one last thing. One last thing. I know we're mm. almost, we're coming up on three hours now for this last cast, which, you know, I should have seen coming. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what are you looking forward to in our Dragon Age playthrough? Oof. I think, so, I mean, between the two, like, Mass Effect and Dragon Age, like, if my pen name did not tip you off, I am much more of a Mass Effect person, and in general, like, I'm not 
a fantasy kind of guy, at least like in terms of like the very traditional type of fantasy, like Dungeons Dragons kind of shit that Dragon Age very much lives in. Um, but what interests me about, you know, like sort of like you know the characters and the politics of the, of Dragon Age that interests me, I'm interested to kind of like we spent a lot of time in you know the first four seasons of Normandy FM kind of talking about how Dragon Age influenced Mass Effect, and so now I'm more interested to kind of like see the flip side of that, like how Mass Effect influenced Dragon Age. And, like, watch that trajectory from Origins to Inquisition and see kind of how they were both, like, kind of playing off each other the whole time. In that respect, I'm definitely interested to see how Mass Effect and Dragon Age play off each other. But I'm almost more interested to see, like, the ways that Dragon Age diverged. Because when you look at, like, look Mm -hmm. at Origins and you can really tell that it came from that era of... Bioware making those pen and paper style RPGs, the D&D style RPGs, uh, the ones that they were very famous for prior to Mass Effect, the things like uh, like Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was like an evolution of that. I wrote a, a piece about it recently, how one of their big things was this idea of morality and that there wasn't going to be a Paragon Renegade split, but you were going to do things that just caused approval and disapproval and those would have ramifications story-wise but then it would also affect the way that other people reacted to you and we saw kind of different evolutions on this the way that your hawk evolves a personality throughout uh dragon age 2 the way that that can all kind of coalesce into different levels of approval and and stature between factions and inquisition uh i feel like dragon age was doing a lot of experimenting like like they almost found some freedom in the fact that they were kind of the playing second fiddle to mass effect because you think about mass effect mm-hmm. being it was this huge thing like by the time they got to three it was a massive event i still laugh because i just finished rewatching 30 rock again for like the millionth time and they had a bunch of very obvious placements of mass effect 3 in that game because a character would be like yeah let's use our per diem to buy video games like mass effect 3 or like tracy jordan tracy <laughs> jordan would be like ha 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 i'm going like 8 a.m is when i wake up and play with um my my japanese school kid friend his parents think he's at school but really he's playing mass effect 3 online with an old uh old angry guy or whatever <laughs> and i was like oh my god like it Granted, it was all done in a very funny, like, knowing way. It was funny, like, looking at it now, being like, oh, wow, yeah. It was, like, it was big enough that it was getting product placement on NBC. Like, that's the level it got to. And Dragon Age has never been that game. It's always been in the shadow. Because it's, even when it got to scales and proportions that are so much higher, I think, overall. Because they've had that continuous universe. And I think with once we get to i'm really excited to talk about trespasser again because that's the one game the one mm. bioware game that you and i have already spoiler casted about in the past and yeah. we're only cap off our dragon age run by redoing trespasser i'm very much looking forward to that um and also for of course having our lovely friends on who have the hot soulless takes but uh <laughs> overall like dragon age just felt like especially in retrospect every game was just trying so many new things and it didn't always succeed. It didn't always do well. Like I I totally understand that there are a lot of qualms that people have with various iterations and versions of dragon age and the things that happened. But I just want to explore that world again. Like I'm just eager to see what that's every time I talk to somebody about dragon age, uh, 
they're like oh wow i should really like that's the one that makes them go i should play that again whereas mass effect they're like oh i fondly remember mass effect and you know they want to preserve you know it's like it's like a cherished Mm -hmm. memory in some ways like they they have a very cherished and it's special to them you know it holds a, a more special weight but i think dragon age is always the one that's like oh i wonder i wonder if my feelings have changed on that and that's not a reflection of whether it's better than mass effect anyways it just means that it's always that one that makes you go like oh yeah i did do that like rival mances i think about that a lot recently like just the idea of oh you can hate someone and still want to bone them like that's <laughs> and dragon age 2 turned that into like a game system oh that's that's neat that's neat that they did that uh so i'm looking forward to that yeah. uh i don't know what my origin is going to be yet i've tried looking at some of the classes already i i already know i'm gonna tell you listeners at home i'm not going to be a mage i don't want to do the fade left well, fine because i, I really be. don't want to do the fade i play mage every dragon i think game. the last i've played through it at least twice and i think both times i was a human noble uh whatever like the warrior i, I just did like a sword and board warrior both times uh, yeah. which is a pretty boring way to play that game all things considered so i might i mean there aren't really any exciting ways to play dragon age Origins, so i'm just gonna like yeah throw it out there. but at least with a mage you get to like cast spells and stuff whereas with like with the warrior just kind of running at things and going like and hitting him with your shield and all that i i might try the rogue mm-hmm. just because i normally don't run a rogue in the first place i think my party for most of dragon age origins was like is it i always forget is it a three person or a four person party Cause it cha- i was gonna say it, just, it changed at some point right i think at dragon age Mm-mm. two it's a three person party Mm-mm. or is it always a four person okay party. i don't know maybe Mm-mm. i'm just thinking of mass effect now see this is also why i need to replay them because i've forgotten so much but i know <laughs> i always had at least one tank and two mages and i'd probably if i had another character it was probably uh alistair uh, and it was just like mm-hmm. two tanks, two mages, and then maybe Alistair had more damage dealing than I did because I just like playing the tank in that game. And then I'd have Morgan and uh, Win, Win, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the back. But that's all those characters, like especially after Inquisition. I want to see Leliana again. I want to see her development. Uh, there's Isabella. Her, she's a really cool character. Morgan's a really cool character. Uh, no, the other ones from Origins really get a lot going on after that game. Anders, yeah, I guess. That's the. But... Yeah, I, I. Not to spoil our like Dragon Age retrospective that started in two months, but I. I feel like Origins is going to be fucking tortured for me because I don't really care about the majority of the things that happen in that game, with the exception of like Morgan and Liliana's existence. Like that's have have we have we determined yeah. yet which DLCs we're doing? I I know we're doing Awakening, we're doing Witch Hunt because that one actually has stuff to do with later games. Are we doing? No. That's the only one that we're I doing know. Doing Leliana's sure. song. I don't own that one, so that like kind of colors my interpretation of whether or not it's important enough. But we'll, I know we'll we're probably out. going to skip the Darkspawn Chronicles because that one. Oh yeah, there there is like a ton of bullshit. And like Dragon Age has a lot of bullshit DLC that we yeah we'll I mean we'll have a more concrete plan once we actually get closer to January fifteenth twenty twenty when we resume our podcasting. Uh, I mean obviously like our first episode is probably going to be 
just a lot of talking about all the origins. There's so many origins to talk about and we'll try and mm. we'll, we'll probably go into detail about the ones that we play and then maybe kind of lightly brush on what the other ones are uh, just because trying to keep track of all of those throughout our playthroughs would just, it would get exhausting at some point. There's, there's a lot of stuff that kind of turns and pivots in that game that is just difficult to keep track of. I, I know I'm probably, I know I'm going to play through it once, but I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on the wiki just reacquainting myself with all the ways right. that, especially the first game, that that stuff can alter and fluctuate. Uh, but we're really looking forward to it. I know I am. I'm actually like, I might start my playthrough this weekend just because I'm already like itching to get started. So, mm. Ken, Eric, it was a joy to podcast so much Mass Effect with you. It was it was a wonder. We've already we we did our I feel like we did our big sad goodbye already with Mass Effect three. Even though we knew Andromeda was coming, I felt like that was our big we're going out like end of Mass Effect thing, and Andromeda was just kind of like the bonus one. Uh, mm-hmm. So I feel like all the fanfare has kind of been flushed out already. But Ken, it was wonderful. Thank you for podcasting so much Mass Effect with me. And I'm looking forward. Thank you for indulging my bullshit for a year. <laughs> hey, Ken, it's looking like we got another year, a Dragon Age ahead of us. So we're going to have to in- Hell yeah. we'll indulge more bullshit. We're going to have more guests. We're going to have more stuff going on. If you want to stay up to date with it, head over to patreon.com slash normdfm, twitter.com slash normdfm shown. That's the way to keep up to date with everything we'll keep you all up there again we've got all the patreon stuff settled so if you need a refresher on that just head over to the page head over to the post check it out send us an email normdfm at gmail.com uh just in case you want to ask us questions or send us messages or anything also i think the dms on the normdfm account are open too i think so mm, if i can open them now well, I, I was gonna say if they're not i know at least mine are open i think ken's are too so you know hit hit those up uh but we just want to thank all of you for making this possible for getting us here and we're excited to see you in january for dragon age Yeah,